Stephen Alcoholic. It's good to be here. It's good to be sober. It's always an honor and a privilege to be invited to share in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I must say, Jason, I am disappointed that I missed the eight kids and the cats and dogs. It sounds like that's a pretty wild household. That's good. That's good. If you're new, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to especially welcome Ricky. You know, I got to tell you, I, I do a few of these. Doug does a ton of them, and it always cracks me up when they do the countdown. And the person who has the least time is invited to come up. And they don't know if it's a good thing or not. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're like, you know, I mean, what's going to happen? You know, you don't know. I mean, it's, we're kind of a suspect crowd, you know. And, and generally, they haven't been warned about what's going to happen. And they're, they're walking up, and there's going to be a presentation. They're going to get a book. It's kind of like an award, but they're not sure. It's, it's like being told on your cell block, you've been, you've been voted most attractive on your cell block. I mean, you know it's an honor, but you're not sure you want to accept the reward. And you're really not sure what's going to happen afterwards, you know? And, and you're not sure if you're going to like it even, you know? But he's, he came up, and, and that was great. That was great. And if you're new, again, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. You're probably sitting here. You're on your fifth speaker today. Fifth speaker. And you're sitting there, and you're looking at some bald, fat man who's going to talk to you about Alcoholics Anonymous for probably over an hour. And you're probably sitting there thinking, man, has it come to this? <laughs> yes, it has. It has. And the reality is we grow on you, but if you're like me, it takes a while. You just got to lean into it. You got to lean into it and do the work. I got here on July 27, 1996. I've been consecutively sober since that date. It wasn't by design. It wasn't by plan. I didn't want to come here. I didn't want to get sober. I had a DUI. I used to drive drunk all the time, but I finally got a DUI, and the judge in Southern California sentenced me to go to six AA meetings in six months. I, too, thought it was excessive. I did. And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. I, I knew that y'all had conventions and conferences like this. I had heard this wicked rumor that y'all don't drink in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to not drink, so I don't want to go. So I hold out. And I wait till I've got five weeks left to do six AA meetings in five weeks. Now, in Southern California at the time, back in 96, they probably had a couple thousand meetings a week. Now they've got about 3,000 meetings a week. So they're all over the place. You can't hardly walk to a liquor store without running into an AA meeting. But uh, I'm thinking, you know, I've got a kind of active social calendar. I'm, I'm kind of busy. I'm not sure how I'm going to fit. I mean, one a week, that's a lot, right? You know, and, and I'm not sure how I can fit this in because I... I haven't had a psychic change yet. I've got a real perception problem. Everything is about me, and I don't, I don't want to go. You know, and finally, I, I wait. I've got, you know, five weeks to do six AA meetings. I'm kind of freaking out. And finally, I go to my first AA meeting, July 27, 1996. That's my sobriety date. And I went to a morning meeting in Hermosa Beach at a clubhouse. Out there, they call them Milano Clubs. And these are just buildings that they host meetings in. And right next to where the meeting room is, they have a coffee bar, and there's double doors that go from the coffee bar into the meeting room. And I walk through those late. The meeting starts at, I think, 7. I'm there around 7.05, fashionably late. They're going about their business. They're doing their thing. To the left of me, there's a counter that they have all kinds of AA paraphernalia crap, like books and literature and stuff that I don't want to read on it. And then to the right, there's a coffee-making machine and there's supposed to be a trash can underneath it, but that morning there was a chair. It's not supposed to be there, but it was there that morning. I popped in the door, I looked at you, you looked at me, and I sat in the chair. As far away from you as I possibly could be. 
separate and apart, the way I like it. You looked at me, and there were a couple empty chairs, and they were very nice, lovely people. They're waving it. They're patting the chair. Come on down. I'm like, no way. Hmm. This is not happening. I'm not going. You can't make me. And the reality is I'm terrified, but I'm giving you the, hey, back off look. You don't want any part of this. Don't bother me. I won't bother you. Just go about your business. And you did. And we, we, we're big on birthdays. You all do anniversaries primarily out here, but we do birthdays. We do them every day. And Doug talked about them. We have, like, have big cakes and it's a big celebration. But I've never been to AA before. I don't know they're doing this. And they're having a birthday that morning. And, and you know, somebody like Jason or Carl has given somebody like Jay a cake for some ungodly period of time, like actually years. And they don't have a cake. What's happening is Jason's got an inverted styrofoam cup. And he puts a candle on it in the back of the room. And he lights this contraption, and then he cups it like it's the Olympic torch or something. And he, and, he, and he very reverently walks it up to the front of the room, and, you know, Jay's patiently waiting for him, and then everybody sings happy birthday, like Doug said, completely out of key, completely out of key. And then Jay blows out this monstrosity of candle wax and molten styrofoam, and thanks, Jason, for the cake. Well, I'm new, but that ain't a cake. I mean, it's not, it's not even a pastry, you know? I mean, it's, it's not a cake, it's not a pastry. And people are talking about, if you want what we have, join us. I'm thinking, I don't think so. I mean, you guys can't tell the difference between pastry, cake, and styrofoam. I mean, this is pretty bizarre. And then it was a sharing meeting. You know, Doug's first meeting was a speaker meeting. My first meeting was a sharing meeting. Well, I don't, I don't listen to this crap. You know, and I'm not planning on staying there. So I'm thinking, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm been kind of busy out there. I'm going to take a nap. Now, they got folding metal chairs back then that are kind of old, and they're canted off to one side, so I'm slouched down in this thing, I'm shutting my eyes, I've got my arms crossed. So you can take a little nap, and you're sharing. And they called on a guy named Dick Dolman. Dick died with 15 years of sobriety, helped a lot of people to include me, but I didn't much care for Dick or anybody else for quite some time. And Dick, on the other hand, loved Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a retired fire captain, he was totally lit up for AA, but he was slightly deaf. Now, everybody in the room knew Dick, and they knew how he shared every morning, but I don't because I'm new. And I'm trying to fall asleep. And they called on Dick, and Dick shared, and because he's slightly deaf, he said, Hi, my name's Dick, and I'm an alcoholic! <laughs> now, if you're trying to go to sleep, and you're verging heavily towards the chunky side, and you're on a folding metal chair that's slanted, you almost slide off and hit the ground. I mean, I'm, I'm going like this. I'm trying to grab onto the coffee-making machine. I'm freaking out because this is, this is really disturbed me. And people are doing, like, it's very rude, what you're just doing right there. They're laughing at me, and they're pointing at me, and they're going, hey, you're new. And I'm like, hey, screw you. You know, I don't, I, this is not, you shouldn't be laughing at me. This is not cool. This is not cool. And you think it's even funnier. You know, and you keep laughing, and I'm pissed, and I'm thinking, I'm, I hate this place. Finally, the meeting's over. I get up to leave, and like we do at the end of every meeting, somebody says, we're going to pray. Okay, I've been to church. I can do this. We're going to pray. I stand up to say a prayer in a civilized manner. Next thing I know, the chuckleheads to my left and right grab my hands. Ooh. I mean, what's, I mean, I didn't give you permission to do that. That's my personal space. I don't, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm not going to say anything. I figure it'll, it'll pass, right? So they said a prayer. I have no idea what the prayer was. Lord's Prayer, Serenity Prayer, Third Step, Seventh Step. We could have sung Kumbaya. I have no idea. I wanted the thing to be over. Finally over, somebody said, amen, I went to let go. You know, catch and release, right? No. They don't let go. 
I, I'm in a pervert daisy chain of 50, 60, 70 people. My arms start rocking back and forth. And they're all looking at me going, keep coming back. It works if you work it. And I'm thinking, I have died and gone to Huckleberry Hill. No, I knew it would be bad. I knew it would be bad, but you've exceeded my expectations. This is, I can't stand this. I'm trying to get out of there. There's, there's people trying to give me stuff. There's a guy saying, here's, here's a phone list. I don't need a phone I don't like people. I'm not calling anybody. I don't need a phone list. You know, here's a meeting director. I'm not coming back. I don't need that thing. Somebody else goes, hey, it's a big book. It's a big book. It'll, it'll save your life. I'm thinking, i got a complex set of social issues. I don't see how a book is going to save my life. And frankly, it's not even that big. A big book is like a coffee table book with pictures and stuff like that. This is just like a regular book. Somebody else goes, hey, man, you got a sponsor. I'm like, dude, I don't even watch NASCAR. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not okay with this. And I have total disdain for this thing that's going to save my life. And if you're new, I've got to tell you, I was in that meeting almost every morning for about three years. And I would like to stand up here and tell you that my journey of recovery started then. But that's not my story. I want to emphasize, uh, uh, I'm not a spokesperson for AA. I don't think there is such a thing. I'm not an authority. I wasn't appointed. I wasn't anointed. I'm just an alcoholic up here tonight sharing his experience. You're here to have your experience. Not the person next to you, not your sponsor, not a sponsee. Your experience. My experience is you get that experience by working the steps. But I didn't know that when I got here. And I also want to say that there are plenty of people that don't have my experience. And by that I mean they're able to come to Alcoholics Anonymous like I could take an Advil for a headache. And they're fine. They're fine. I am not fine. I'm going to meetings and I'm getting worse. And I don't understand it. I'm hearing, you know, people are saying things that are well, well-intentioned, but I'm taking them out of context. They're saying, you know, meeting makers make it. Just go to meetings. You know, don't drink and go to meetings. 90 meetings in 90 days, all of which is good advice. There are other people that are talking about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're talking about sponsorship. They're talking about the steps, which is the program of recovery contained within the book. But, you know, I'm not drinking. I don't want to overreact here. You know? I mean, I don't want to get over sober or anything like that. I don't want to do things that, I, you know, there's no extra credit or anything. I'm, I'm thinking, because I hear what I want to hear when I want to hear it, and I just disregard everything else. I'm thinking, I should be getting better because I'm not drinking. So I should be feeling better. And I'm feeling worse. I'm feeling worse. I'm going to one, two, three meetings a day, and I am getting worse. People are talking about being restored to sanity in the second step. I feel like I'm going nuts. People are sharing. I'm hearing every second or third word. It's a lot of white noise. It's kind of scary. What's happening is I'm, I'm suffering from untreated alcoholism. Or more accurately, you are suffering from my untreated alcoholism. I'm a jackass at home. I'm a jackass at work. I'm a jackass at meetings. I come into meetings and old-timers look at me and they go, Lamb, just sit in the corner and don't talk to anybody. For God's sake, don't talk to any newcomers because they still have hope. You know, I mean, it was, it was bad. When I finally got a sponsor, Doug knows my sponsor, Michael, I mean, Michael used to greet me in the morning. He used to say, good morning, your surliness. Because I just, I was, I hated it. I hated it. And my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is attitude is optional. It comes later. Sometimes people will get up at the podium and they'll say, Alcoholics Anonymous is for people who really want it. And other people will disagree and they say, oh, Alcoholics Anonymous is for people who really need it. My experience is it's for people who really do it. But I didn't understand that. Then. So I'm going out of my mind. I'm going out of my mind. And finally, I go on a business trip. I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer by trade. I go back to Minneapolis, and I'm in Pittsburgh. And I'm doing depositions. I'm getting ready to do a trial, and I'm supposed to be there all week. 
I finish around Wednesday or Thursday midday. I go back to my hotel room. Inside my hotel room, I have an honor bar. An honor bar. I'm a newcomer. I have no honor. But what they've given me is this little mini fridge with a key. I got the key. Inside it is everything I need. Two by two by two by two. Bourbon. Scotch. Gin. Vodka. No tequila, which pissed me off. But a lot of other stuff. You know, domestic beer, imported beer. I mean, you could have a small party in that. And I want to drink. I want to drink. But I've been around Alcoholics Anonymous long enough, and I've heard enough of my story through you to know that I can't do this. I'm the kind of alcoholic. My wife sends me out to get milk. I come back three days later. You know, stuff happens. I meet Carl. We get to talking. And then I come back three days later, and I'm like, hey, baby, I got the milk. What's the problem? Now, the Al-Anons know what the problem is. It's called alcoholism. But I'm thinking, I've succeeded the task because I just compress time. It doesn't mean anything to me. And I'm in this hotel room, and I'm out of my mind. I'm out of my mind. And I'm feeling separate and apart. And I love the big book, and I love the 12 and 12. But one of the things that I really enjoy that helped me early on that the old-timers will know about is a series of talks that a guy did back in 1975 named Chuck Chamberlain. And it was put in a book called A New Pair of Glasses. And that book has a diagram. It's a very simple diagram. It's only one diagram. And what Chuck does is he draws a circle. And Chuck puts all the people, plants, and animals in the universe. Life, good, God, whatever your concept of a higher power is, all inside the circle of life. And then Chuck to the left of that draws a stick man. And that's Chuck and that's me, outside the circle of life, separate and apart what the 12 and 12 calls anxious apartments. And what separates is a thin line, which he writes, ego or conscious separation from God. By the time we get to the 11th step, we're trying to get conscious contact. I'm new, I'm out of my mind, I haven't worked any steps. I have conscious separation and anxious apartments. The reality of this is, it is the big lie. Every alcoholic that I've worked with, and I've worked with a lot, has this same misperception. And it is through working the steps that I can change that perception to see the truth. But I'm out of my mind. I'm out of my mind. I'm pacing back and forth. I'm opening and shutting the honor bar, opening and shutting the honor bar. I inventoried it. I organized it. I try to distract myself. I'm watching television. I'm flipping back and forth between religious television and porno. Religious television. I, I didn't say it was a good plan. Okay, I'm a newcomer. I mean, the bad part is I'm getting a little confused as to who's doing what on what channel, but that's a whole other issue. <coughs> and finally, I go, I'm out of my mind, so I go inside the honor bar, and I, I drink everything in the honor bar except the alcohol. And I drink this stuff manically. I mean, I drink the soda. I drink the regular soda. I drink the diet soda. I drink the fizzy water. I drink the flat water. I drank tonic water. Ooh, that's right. I mean, it has no, there's nothing without gin. I mean, it's bad. It's like bad tequila. You know, your face kind of caves in. You can work through it, but there's no end game. You don't go anywhere but get pissed off. I mean, it's just, it's a bad deal, and I'm out of my mind, and whatever you want to call it, whether it's the dumb luck of the alcoholic, Norm Alpha used to call it seconds and inches, I view it now as the grace of God. I don't drink. I go downstairs, get in a car, go to the airport. Drive to the airport, get back to Los Angeles. I get up the next morning. Again, I'm, I'm, I've had time to think. If I have time to think, I have time to plan. So I got a plan. And I'm thinking this is a good plan. I'm about 100 days stark raven sober. I had spent 13 and a half years in the Army before I got out. 
and then another two and a half years before I got sober. And when I got out in 1993, I'd gone through airborne training and ranger training and special forces training, and then the Army had sent me to law school, and I'd acquired a bunch of stuff that I had in a go bag. It's a kit bag. I had weapons, I had demolition, and I had 13 passports in this go bag. And I didn't turn them in in 1993 when I left the Army, and I didn't even think I was stealing. I just thought, you know, I mean, this could come in handy one day. You know, I mean, I, I didn't see it as stealing. I've since gotten rid of, all, of everything. And I wasn't going to use the weapons of the demo. I wasn't going to go Columbine or anything, but I need the passports. And I've got this plan, and I'm thinking it's a, it's a brilliant plan. This is what I'm going to do. I need to take my blue tourist passport, my regular passport that has my name, Steve Lamb, on it. And I need to leave the country under my name. I need to fly up to British Columbia. Once I get to British Columbia, I'll start flipping passports and identities. I'll head east for a week or two. I'll come back in a couple weeks. I'll be back in British Columbia. Steve Lamb will cease to exist. Now, you know, I got a wife. I got kids. I don't think of them for 10 seconds, 5 seconds, 1 second. They're not part of the equation. People in Alcoholics Anonymous have been talking about geographics. I don't see that. I think I'm just making a career change, and they're really not involved. That's how selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking I am, and I'm afraid. And then my plan is I'm going to head down to Costa Rica. I've got some former associates of mine. They're doing some rather interesting marketing and distribution down there. And that's my newcomer plan. And so I lay all this stuff out, and the 13 passports that I should have turned in in 1993, they're all current. They haven't expired, but my blue tourist passport has expired. It's expired. And I'm out of my mind because I'm thinking I can't execute this simple plan because I need to leave the country on my name or it doesn't work. Now, the reality is uh, it, it doesn't matter about sobriety, but, and it doesn't appear like this very often, but I'm pretty highly educated. The Army sent me to law school at University of Southern California. When I was in the Army, they sent me to get a Master of Laws right next to the University of Virginia. I'm licensed to practice before the Supreme Court of the United States. But that morning in 1996, I did not have the cognitive ability in my brain as a newcomer to realize this is pre-9-11. I could have flown to British Columbia on my driver's license. I didn't even need my blue tourist passport. But I couldn't, I mean, that was just too much. I couldn't do that. And I'm sitting there and I'm almost in tears. And what's looping through my head is one of these sick, pathetic sayings that they say in the South Bay. Y'all are pretty refined here, maybe you don't say it, but what they say back there is if your ass is falling off, put it in a bag, take it to a meeting. Yeah, you're nodding your head, but what does that mean, really? I mean, what are you talking, like a hefty double wide? You know, I mean, well, not you, me. I'm just, I'm just, but apparently it has something to do with me going to a meeting, and I got, I got nothing else, so I go to this meeting. I'm at this meeting, a guy who became my grand sponsor, who I didn't like, Jim, he was talking, and he was talking about a sponsor. And he said, if you don't have a sponsor, you need a sponsor, see me after the meeting. And I hadn't tried that. So I went up to him after the meeting, and I looked at him right in the shoes, because I couldn't look at him in the face. And I said, Jim, I heard you talking about sponsorship. I've been around about 100 days. I thought it's time I should interview for a sponsor. Because that's what I thought I was going to do. People have been talking about, you're laughing, but people are talking about, you know, choose wisely. Find someone who wants what you have. Well, how do you do that if you don't interview? Again, I got a complex set of social issues. Not anybody's suitable for me. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty special. I don't, may not look like it, but I am. You just got to talk to me for a little while. I'll tell you all about it, right? And Jim just shakes his head and goes, you are pathetic. 
And he takes me outside and he introduces me to a guy I've never met before. He says, Michael, Steve, Steve, Michael, sponsor, sponsor, go with God. And he walks away laughing. And I'm thinking, this ain't right. This is not right at all. This is not, no, this, and it's not funny. It is absolutely not funny. But Michael, on the other hand, is very excited. Because he's got a live one. And if you're new, I've got to tell you, we have a vampiric need for new blood. It, it borders on the macabre. We tend to pick you off in the corner and people will fight over who gets to sponsor you. But he's got one. He's been delivered to him. Michael takes out a card. He's got a pen. He's writing his name and his address and his phone number on his card. And he asks me a couple questions that I like to ask the people that I sponsor. He says, do you have a big book? Now, in my mind, my mind is going a million miles a minute. I'm not saying anything. What I'm thinking is, yeah, I got a, I got a, big, I got, I got a big book. I got a big book. I got, I'm not reading it with you. I don't even know who you are. I mean, this is wrong. I should be able to interview. I don't know who this guy is. He's younger than me. I yeah, I got a big book. Do you have a 12 and 12? I'm thinking, yeah, I'm not reading it with you. I'm not reading. And by the way, he's got this lazy, wandering eye. You know, it's looking off to the side. <laughs> it's really pretty creepy. I mean, it's, it's creepy. And I, it, the worst part was when we went to do sexual inventory, he said, we're going to invite God in. And I'm like, where is he? You know, because, I mean, it kind of freaked me out. I mean, I'm new. I don't know what's going on. But I said, yeah, I got a 12 and 12. He says, good, you're going to need him. Be at my house Monday night at 630. And everything in my body said no. But what I said was, okay. And if you knew, that was my first step in Alcoholics Anonymous. I always knew I was powerless over alcohol. But I didn't accept that my life was unmanageable until I asked that man to sponsor me, even in the lame way that I did. And we met every Monday night at 6.30. We read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had me look up words that I thought I knew the meaning to. We got to a prayer. We said the prayer. We got to a step. We worked the step. We also read the 12 and 12. Same thing. Spent a lot of time on it, 6 and 7, because there's not a lot in the big book on it. And it saved my life. It saved my life. And, you know, the first four chapters of the big book are almost related entirely to the first two steps. There's other stuff in there, but they're really heavily influenced on the first two steps. And, I, again, I didn't have a problem with the first step. I was there on the first step. I, you know, I'm powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. The second step, you know, is do, 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 am I, do I believe a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity? I know what they're talking about, God. I mean, like Doug, I'm a, I'm a thinker. You know, I, look, I read ahead. I, I know what's going on here. I know that God's involved. And I'm like, well, I believe it's happened for you, Michael, and I've seen it's happened for other people. I don't believe it will happen for me, but I'll concede that it is possible. He's like, okay, that's sufficient. You're willing to believe. That's sufficient. Okay, now I've got to turn my will and my life over to this thing that I don't understand. So now we're having a concept, we're having a discussion about God. And he says, look, I want you to understand something. If you have a religious affiliation or belief, nothing in the big book wants to push you away from that. In fact, it says quite clearly, be quick to see where religious people are right. If you, however, have a problem with God, consider this. The big book uses the word God over a hundred times. Higher power twice, creative intelligence a couple times, universal mind a few times. Those are words. They're designed to point you in a direction to an experience that we're hoping you have by taking the steps. The steps are a set of spiritual exercises that are designed to allow each individual to find, develop, and maintain a conscious contact of a God, with a God, of his or her own understanding. 
so that they can live and move and have their being out there in the world. Now, this word God no more defines or limits this essence or being that we're hoping you get into contact with than if I were to say Lisa defines or limits her. You know, you know who I'm talking about. You can see who she is. She talked up here earlier today. It was a great talk. But you don't know her. You don't understand her. You know, unless you're her sponsor or someone she sponsored or one of her close friends or husband, you don't really know her. But you know where to look. And that's what we're talking about. And the other thing he said to me was like, think about it like music. Everybody loves music. Everybody loves music. Some people like country western. Some people like rock. Some people like classical. We're not here to try to convince you what type of music we like or you like. We're here to tell you to seek, find, listen, and then enjoy what you listen to to get in tune with the infinite. If you keep looking, you'll find it. I'm thinking, this guy is nuts. This guy's like a mystic muffin, a cosmic cupcake. I don't know what this guy's talking about. But I'm like, okay, well, how will I know if I've done a third step? He says, well, you're going to do it your whole life, but a good general indication is if you start writing your fourth step. Okay, no problem. So now I'm writing my fourth step, and he gave me specific instructions. But before I talk about that, I don't like to talk about my drinking for a lot, because uh, I'd rather talk about recovery. But for the new people, I want to, want to give you a, like a little snapshot of what my drinking was like, my personal chapter three. And it goes like this. I'm a trial lawyer by trade. So before I got sober, the way I would prepare for trial is I would drink beer and shoot tequila. Have you tried it? It's very effective. I mean, what happens is I'm drinking beer and shooting tequila, and I can, in my mind's eye, the whole courtroom is laid out in front of me. I go in, I pick a jury, I make an opening statement, I present all the evidence, I examine and cross-examine witnesses, I make a closing argument, which, by the way, is brilliant. The jury goes back, they deliberate, and all in my mind's eye, and they come back out and they rule in my favor, verdict in my favor, judgment in my favor, all while drinking beer and shooting tequila. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's unbelievable. The problem is about the time the jury comes back, I go down because I pass out. So before I start this exercise, I set alarm clocks at about three to five minute intervals four, five, six of them around the room, because one or two probably won't wake me up. Next morning, on the third, fourth, fifth alarm clock, wake up, turn them off, shower, shave, put on a suit, put on a tie, go to work. The, the particular morning that I'm thinking about was a typical morning. I'm going to trial downtown Los Angeles, Los Angeles Superior Court. My client is a guy named Brian. He's a high finance guy out of New York City. The case is a commercial case. It's other people's money. They've been trying to settle it for a while, but we can't settle it, so we're picking a jury. We get ready to pick a jury, and the judge looks at my client and looks at the other client and says, look, you've been trying to sort this out for months now, and it's just a matter of money. Uh, keep trying to sort it out, because I don't, I don't want you to tie up my courtroom for three, four, five weeks if you guys can settle this, so keep talking. So they did. We're picking a jury around 11.30. Ryan's really excited. He tells me, hey, we've settled. It's, it's in his favor, several million dollars. He's very happy. He tells the judge, the other side agrees. They put it on the record. The judge releases us. Brian is really excited. He says, I, you know, it's, it's kind of early. It's before noon, Lamb, and you don't know how you feel about this, but it seems like we should celebrate. Um, I know it's early, but do you want to have a drink? I'm thinking, what a country. Yeah, 
I mean, I can't wait to have a drink. Because I'm thinking I'm not going to be able to prepare for trial until later, but now before noon and he's going to buy. So we go to the Grand Avenue Bar, which is on Grand Avenue and 5th. It's a high-end sports bar right next to the Biltmore Hotel. Very rich. I drink beer, I shoot tequila. I drink at home a lot. The bars I drink at are very nice bars. They have this really beautiful fragrance. They call it Eau de Urine. Very, very attractive. I'm not a high-end guy. This is a high-end bar. And Brian goes in, he tells the bartender to take a dusty bottle of cognac from the back of the bar. He puts it on top of the bar. And he has him pour two shots. He brings out two large brandy sniffers. He plops them on the bar. And he pours one fluid ounce in each one. Now, when you put a shot in a tequila glass, it damn well should go near the top, right? It, 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 it better if it's at the top so you've got to lean over before you don't spill anything. But if he's a good bartender, you can, there, you can see it. There's no question that there's tequila in a shot glass. When you put a fluid ounce in a brandy snifter, it, it's kind of sad and desperate. I mean, you can hardly see it. It's lonely. You know, it just kind of shimmers in the distance, and you're looking over there, and I'm looking at it, and Brian can tell I'm confused. He says, you never had cognac before. No, I never had cognac before. So pay attention. There's a whole protocol. There's a process to this. And again, he's a high-end finance guy. This guy's right out of GQ. He says, look, you want to take this brandy sniff, you want to cup it in the palm of your hand so the palm of your hand makes contact with the glass. That's important because the heat from the palm of your hand will go through the glass, and it will warm up the cognac. That's important because as the cognac warms up, it releases the bouquet. Now I'm thinking, this is totally unnecessary with tequila. You don't have to go through this process at all with tequila, but he's buying whatever. And they say, bring it up to your nose. Don't snort it. Don't sniff it. Just take that cognac and allow the bouquet to waft into your nostrils. And then you want to back it down. You want to make sure it's the right temperature. I'm thinking, we're going to drink this stuff, right? You know, and he's like, yeah, then we, you want to bring it up to your lips. You don't want to drink it. You don't want to sip it. You just want to allow the cognac to drape across your palate. Now, by now, my, my eyes twitching, my teeth are itching. You know, you get that itchy teeth need to drink, and I'm just kind of rocking back and forth, right? And Brian goes through the whole process, and he shows me, and it's, and it's, it's beautiful. I mean, like I said, it's right under GQ. And he says, okay, it's your turn. I'm like, my, my turn, my, I love my turn. I love my turn, my turn, I love my turn, love my turn, love my turn. I'm trolling around thinking, how, how warm does it need to be, right? So I'm going to bring it up. And I'm, I'm cool. I'm going to let it waft, and bam, I shoot it, just like tequila. You know, Brian looks at me. I look at him. I don't know who was more surprised. He says, man, what are you doing? I'm like, I, I don't know. And I just, I just hung my head. I reverted to the alcohol camp, and I said, uh, I'm sorry. He's like, man, that's a couple hundred dollars a shot. Can I have a beer? And he's a cool guy, so I'm drinking beer. And I have three or four beers, but, but Brian is, he, he's a generous guy. So pay attention, we're going to do it again. He goes through the whole process again. Now it's my turn. I'm ready. And I'm thinking, I'm not where I was last night, but I'm warmed. I got this. I got this. I twirl it around. I bring, bam, and it's gone again, you know? And there's no thought process. I mean, I didn't talk to it. It didn't ask me what I want to do. It just happened. And then he gives me that look, you know, that look, you know, that like, man, that ain't right, you know, and, and, and he clearly, he's never read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but he knows that I am bodily and mentally different than he is. And he's shaking his head, he goes, man, I'm going to go to the bathroom, and uh, then I'm going to head back to the hotel room, it's about 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock, back in New York, I'm going to tell him the good news that I'm taking off. Okay, no problem. I'm drinking my beer, paying, you know, paying attention to my beer. 
And I look over and I see his cognac. Bam! I drank that. You know, and I go to the bathroom, I come out. Now he's arguing with the bartender because somebody's stolen his cognac and it's very expensive. I remind him I'm a trial attorney. I know how to cross-examine people. I'm going around. I'm cross-examining people like Mary. You know, but, but Brian's not stupid. You know, he's now an ex-client. He's shaking his head. He's walking out. He's leaving. Now, a person who's not an alcoholic would be very disturbed. But my first thought is, okay, now we're on. Now I'm going to drink the way I want to drink. I sit down. I get a table. I start drinking beer and shoot tequila. Drinking beer, shoot tequila. Drinking beer, shoot tequila. Now, there are a lot of people, when they drink a lot, they forget to eat. Not my story. I like a light snack, like a couple burgers or a pizza. You know, nothing real heavy. And I drink beer, I shoot tequila, maybe I have a, have a pizza, and I don't mean to be gross and disgusting, but I see a bunch of you wearing bib overalls, I think you can handle it. I get musical, I start farting. Yeah, I know, it's not an impressive skill set, but... But when you're totally hammered, you're quite amused. You know, I got this whole symphony going on. I've got this purple haze thing. And, you know, and I'm just barking them off. And people are looking at me and shaking their heads. And I'm like, hey, these people just do not know how to party. And I'm drinking beer. I'm shooting to kill. There's two women off on the side. They're looking at me. And I'm looking at them. And I don't know about you, but when I drink like that, I can read minds. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah. They want me. There's no question. Now, I probably just coughed up a chunk of pizza. And they're just shaking their heads, but I have a perception problem. I haven't had a psychic change. I haven't found a God of my understanding. And uh, I just, uh, I'm a very inarticulate mind reader. So I keep drinking. And I keep farting. And I go to lift my leg to be particularly expressive, and I just completely miscalculate. Now, the worst part about it is, I think to myself, oh, yeah, I remember this. It's not like it hasn't happened before, right? But I'm, I'm like, okay, act cool, like nothing, you know, just don't, don't, show, don't show any emotion, and don't, don't put the cheek down. Got to keep the cheek up, you know, because you don't want to make contact, you know? Then you kind of finish the beer and just kind of slide out on one cheek, you know, just kind of, kind of like a big, fat, bald ballerina. You just kind of slide off on one cheek, and then I go to the bathroom, and I, I go in the stall, and I take off my jacket and my pants, I take off my drawers, I clean myself up, I put my pants back on, I put my jacket back on, I'm out at the sink, you know, rinsing my drawers out like any good alcoholic would, you know? <laughs> and, you know, some guy walks in and looks at me and goes, ooh, and I'm like, hey, what's your problem, man? Don't you practice hygiene? I mean, then stuff happens, you know? And I get him wrung out, I ring him out, I go back in the stall, and I take my jacket off, take my pants off, put the damp drawers back on, put my pants back on, I put my jacket back on, I'm... I'm walking outside, now i got kind of soggy drawers. And again, i got a perception problem. So my first thought is, man, I'm feeling kind of sexy. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Finally, they, they, they send me out of the bar. I drive home. I park in the driveway. My driveway, your driveway. I'm an equal opportunity driveway kind of guy. I don't care. Then I go through the front door. The front door is the garage door. There's no way in God's creation that I'm getting a key in the keyhole. Don't even try i got a garage door opener. It's a double wide. It goes up. Don't park there. Just walk in there. To the right, there's some stairs. I go up the stairs, and, and there's a little fridge right there. And I hope I never forget this. I don't care if I've been out there for three hours or three days. I stop, and I get a beer. It's what I do. I drink no matter what. I get that beer. I open the beer. I drink it. I walk upstairs where my lovely wife is in bed. I put the empty on a nightstand or maybe the floor. 
I crawl into bed with her. And on a good night, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, I get up and I stagger around and I maybe go in her closet or I'm in the hallway and I pee in her boots or the trash can or something like that. And on a bad night, I wet the bed. I wet the bed. Yeah, that's what I bring to the table. I am a, a vision for you. There's no question about it. When I, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, my wife was like, no, keep him. Don't have to give him back, you know. And uh, that's how I drink. I hope that's a liver. <laughs> and that's how I drink, 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 and that's my chapter three. You know, that's my chapter three. And this happens over and over and over. But finally, I'm not drinking. I'm working the steps with Michael. And I get to the fourth step, and Michael says, I want you to do an inventory. I want you to do a resentment inventory, fear inventory, sexual misconduct inventory. And I'd like you to follow the outline in the book. And there are a lot of different inventory processes, and my belief is that you should do whatever your sponsor directs you to do. There's, there's good, good outlines, good workbooks, all kinds of stuff. But I'm a thinker. I'm a heavy thinker, and it gets me in a lot of trouble. Michael knows that. So he says, look, you know, why don't you just do what it says on page 65? You look on page 65 for the resentment inventory, you'll notice that there's three columns. There's not even complete sentences. People talk about their life story. I don't really want to hear your life story. I would really like you to follow this process. You'll note that there's uh, two, three, four words in each column. They're not complete sentences. They're just bullet points. You, you don't really need more than two or three words per column. All you've got to do is write who you're resentful at. The person, the institution, the principal. What's the cause? Two or three words. What is the condition or what affects you now? Is it self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, security, personal relations, sexual relations? You can even put the acronym if you want. Very quick, just little words. And then on the fourth column, and there isn't a fourth column, but if you look on page 67, it says turning back to our list. We're going to identify our mistake, fault, and blame. So those are character defects. And he said, look, you're going to hear a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous say that the fourth column is my part. It doesn't say that in the book. It's a perfectly good shorthand, but I don't want you to look at it that way. Because you may have a problem with that. I'm like, what are you talking about? So just trust me. Sometimes people who get involved in my part, they tend to think that, you know, it's all about the cause, not the condition. The second column, not the third column. You always have mistake, fault, and blame as to the second or the third column, sometimes both. But not always the cause. I'm like, I, don't know, I don't know what he's talking about. I have no idea what he's talking about. He said, just ask me to do it. I said, okay, no problem. So I go and I write an inventory. And I write a fear inventory. And I write a sexual misconduct. It takes me a few weeks. He says, okay, now you're going to read it to me. And I come down, I sit down at his, on his couch, and I'm reading him this inventory. The first person on my inventory is my father. So I'm resentful at two words, my father. Second column, the cause, two words, deserted me. Now, Michael's prepared for a long talk, and I explained to him that when I was five years old, my father left. He went to Vietnam. He didn't die there. He just didn't come back. He was in the Air Force. He joined an outfit called Air America. He hooked up with the CIA. He was in Thailand, I don't know, six, seven, eight, ten years. It's hard to tell. He met a woman there, a Thai woman, my stepmother. He married her, apparently before he divorced my mom. And I have a half-sister. And I hardly heard from my father for years. He deserted me. What does it affect? Oh, pretty much everything. Self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, security, personal relations, and sexual relations. My life is shot through with it. Other than that, it's not a problem. What's my fourth column? Mistake, fault, or blame? Well, in relation to the second column, none. I was five years old. I didn't, I didn't you know, 
I don't, I don't have a role in that. How about now? I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm 37 years old. By the time I'm doing my inventory, I'm 38. It's over three decades. So why, am I, why is my self-esteem, my pocketbook, my ambition, my personal life, why is that all still impacted three decades later? Am I selfish, self-centered, self-seeking? I don't think so. Dishonest? No. How about pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, sloth? I write down anger. It's dissipated now. I just kind of have this, I just resent the SOB, you know, but I, I got it. I'm angry. I mean, for about 10 years, it was pure vitriolic hatred. But I write down anger, some residual anger. Fear, a lot of fear. What does that look like? I love my father. And I showed him my love, and I gave him my love, and he abused it. And it's not safe for me to feel that way and react that way towards anybody. I cannot... There has to be a wall of insulation between me and you and you and me. You can't know me for who I am. It's not safe. I'm not going to let that happen to me ever again. Now, that does not make for good marital relations. doesn't make for good relations with the kids. doesn't even make for good relations with friends because I can't be myself. It's too scary. And then finally, as it says in 66 and 67, I'm unwilling to accept that my father is a child of God who could be spiritually sick like me. I'm unwilling to forgive him. just don't want to do it. So I read this, and I'm getting ready to go on to the next person. And Michael stops me, because I don't realize this is going to be an interactive process. I don't realize he's helping me catalog these character defects. I don't realize that this is going to come into play in 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, and is going to frame my conversation with God. But he does. He says, I, I got some questions. Well, what is it? Can you resentful at your father, right? Yeah. He deserted you, right? Yeah. And if I understand you correctly, you've got some residual anger, a lot of fear, and you don't want to forgive him. You're unwilling to accept that he could be spiritually sick like you. I'm saying, that's right. And I've read ahead, Michael. I know there's a ninth step, and it's not going to happen. Ever. And he said, look, this program is based on honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness, but you've got to understand, all we're doing here is reading this. This is a catalog of your care. We're going to deal with that later. Don't worry about it. He said, I got, I got one other question. I'm like, okay, what is it? He said, well, I know it's probably a little different in your mind. But when you told me your story the day you asked me to sponsor you, if I understand you correctly, you had this kit bag and you were going to get it, and you were going to get some passports, you were going to go to British Columbia, and you were going to fly to Costa Rica. And I don't think you said you were going to desert your wife and children, but you weren't taking them with you, were you? Well, my first thought was, oh, this is not going well at all. This is not going the way I thought it was going to go at all. And what happened was I, I experienced what is referred to as ego deflation at death. Sometimes we talk about a spiritual experience as the white light, this feeling of God. That certainly happens to some of our members. But what is not talked about a lot is this type of spiritual experience. It's a very real spiritual experience if I do something with it. What's happened is my sponsor has held a mirror of me up to me so I can see me for who I am. And if I can see me for who I am, maybe I can see you for who you are. If I can see you for who you are and me for who I am, maybe I can realize that we're all inside the circle of life. But it's very painful. And I don't like it. And I'm not comfortable about it. So now I've got some work to do. And I get rid of the rest of the inventory. And I, I get quiet. And I review what I've done. I think I've done a pretty thorough job. And I come back. And... Uh, you know, I do six and seven, which is an ongoing process, and I get into my eight step. And I've got this list, and I'm reviewing it with Michael. And he says, I don't see your father on the list. 
I'm like, your damn Skippy's not on the list. I told you he's not going to be on the list. So we reviewed, you know, 8 and 9, particularly in the 12 and 12, because it talks a lot about forgiveness there. We reviewed the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Michael's like, what do you think that means? I'm like, I think that's a damn trick question. That's what I think that means. You know what it means. It means that, you know, I'm only forgiven to the extent that I forgive. We reviewed the prayer of St. Francis. I mean, I, I, I get it. I get it. You know, if resentment is the number one offender, and from it stem all forms of spiritual disease, the only antidote for that, the only antidote for that is forgiveness. Because as long as I'm disturbed, I have a resentment. And the process is to try to get undisturbed. So I understand that, and I appreciate it, and I agree with it. But I won't do it. So he's like, are you going to pray for the willingness? No problem. So now I'm into the ninth step. I've made some amends. Things are going well. Uh, made amends to my wife. And, uh, you know, I'm back in the big bed. You know, I don't quite have regular crossover privileges yet. But, you know, it's, it's better than it was. Things are better with the kids. And, you know, but uh, there's still some separation with my wife. And I'm talking to Michael about it. And he says, well, you know, this is a relationship issue. And maybe if you fix this relationship issue with your father, your relationship with your wife would get better. I mean, I understand in principle how that would work. And I agree with you completely. Are you willing to do it? No. So I keep praying. I keep praying. And this goes on for a matter of years. Finally, after a number of years, he makes it on the list. But I don't know what I'm going to do. And I like to have specific direction on what to do. Now, I'm, I've got an active 10-step process now, an active 11-step process. And uh, I'm, I'm sponsoring guys. And I'm leading them through the steps. And they're finding a God of their understanding. I'm a man of God. I'm walking amongst them. But I don't want to do this thing, this one thing. So finally, he's on the list, but I don't know what to do. And I asked Michael, what do I do? He's like, I don't know. Pray and meditate. It'll come to you. So I'm praying and meditating. And then I made a huge mistake. I told Michael that I was going to go up to Anchorage, Alaska to do some depositions. Michael got really excited. Because he was praying and meditating for me, too. And he said, this is great. You'll make amends to your father. Because your father, you told me, he lives in Wasilla. It's just outside of Anchorage. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not connecting these two dots at all. I'm like, I, you know, and that's not what I, I just said I'm going to go do a debt. No, no, no. He's like, you know, I'm praying, you're praying, we're both praying. I think God's answered our prayer. I don't think, I don't think he's answered our prayer at all. He said, well, get quiet, you know, and see what comes to you. And I did for a couple days, and that was the answer. But I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to make amends. And I'm uncomfortable. And I ask him, what do, I, what do I do? I'll go up there. But what do I do? He says, you know what? It'll be all right. Ask God for direction. I did. And all I got was just get on the plane. I wanted, I wanted to know what to say. And nothing was happening. Nothing was coming to me. But I got on the plane. I flew up to Anchorage. I told him I was coming up. I uh, go through the terminal and I see him. And the first thing I notice, he's a lot smaller, a lot older than I remember. And he's kind of he's shuffling towards me like he wants to come towards me, but he's uncertain. And he's, he's lifting his arms, but he's really uncertain. I, on the other hand, am walking towards him with purpose. I have no idea what the purpose is. But I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. When I make a commitment, I follow through. I'm walking towards him. I don't know what I'm going to do. I get up to him without thinking. I just reached out and did one of the things that I hated people doing to me when I first got here. I grabbed him and I hugged him. And my father buried his head in my shoulder. And he cried for about five minutes. And forgiveness occurred. I didn't have to say anything. 
I just had to show up for the experience. So I go back to Los Angeles, and wow, it's amazing. My relationship with my wife gets better. Who knew? You know, it's amazing. Who knew? And, uh, you know, things are going okay, and one of the things that I like to talk about, because I like to talk about amends. Amends are important. You know, my experience is sometimes people hold up, they don't do amends, and it can really bite them in the butt afterwards. I mean, actually, we framed the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, June 10th, 1935, not as the date of Dr. Bob's sober birthday. In fact, he had a beer and a goofball that day and went out and did anal surgery on some poor schmuck. Why, that's a historic moment on that day, and we're not even sure that that's the actual date. Some people say it's within a week of that. But why we picked that date is because that's the date that Dr. Bob had come back from an AMA convention that he got drunk on because he didn't want to make amends. And after he did surgery, he went out and made amends. He was gone almost all afternoon. And he made amends, and he stayed sober. One of the amends that I had to make when I first got here was to my daughter, Ashley. My daughter, Ashley, was born with cerebral palsy with a severe seizure disorder. One of the many things I'm not proud of is I resented her before I got here and after I got here. And I had to do a lot of work and a lot of inventory on that because a man is not supposed to be resentful about his daughter. You know, what's the reason? Because she wasn't normal? Because in my mind, I had to take care of her? I don't know. I don't know, but I resent. it was killing me. It was killing me. And I did a lot of work on this, and I did a lot of prayer. I did a lot of meditation. I finally got to the point where I went down and made amends to my daughter. My daughter, at this point in time, was in a 24-hour care facility in San Diego because when she would have a seizure, she would go into status. And if they didn't get her within, you know, 10 minutes, she would die. I mean, she just had seizures all day long. She couldn't talk. She couldn't walk. She was in a, a wheelchair. And, and I got to the point where, through this amends process, a father was restored to a daughter and a daughter to a father. And I loved my daughter. And I'd, we'd go down there and we'd put a balloon around her wheelchair. We'd take her down to, to uh, SeaWorld. This is before the, they started eating the trainers and stuff. But, um, you know, we'd take her down to SeaWorld. It was kind of an idyllic place before <laughs> And, and we'd take her to the zoo and stuff, and she'd laugh and giggle, and the wind would blow through her hair, and it'd ruffle the balloon. And it was great. And it was great. And I, and I would talk to my sponsor, and I was so happy that this had happened. And then she would go into the hospital a lot. And finally she went to the hospital one time. She had this uh, seizure. We went down to see her, and I'm talking to the doctor. And uh, the doctor, this is in 2000. And the doctor says, uh, she, she won't be, well, I don't think she's going to make it out of the hospital. I mean, she's really in bad shape. I mean, my daughter's tough. I mean, she's, this is, she's been doing this all the time, and this can't be. And she no, really, you, what you don't understand, Mr. Lamb, is she's 19 years old, but interior-wise, she's got the body of a 90- or 100-year-old person because she's on all this anti-seizure medication, all this other medication, and her kidneys and liver, they just can't take it anymore. You know, her system is just shutting down. And this happens with kids. And so I get quiet because I got this active 11-step process and I'm having a conversation with God and normally they're pretty good conversations, but not this morning. This morning it's going like this. How could you do this to me? You know, I know I was a bad dad, but I'm a good dad now. I've been, you know, I'm a good dad. How could you take my daughter from me? Uh, I, I talked to Michael and one of the friends that, that, that Doug talked about, Scott, helped me to do more inventory. I had to realize I was being selfish and self-centered. I mean, my daughter, she couldn't talk, but she could 
convey her thoughts with her eyes. And when I got quiet and I held her and she looked at me, I knew she was, she was okay. She was ready to go. She was tired. I mean, the reality of the situation was my job was to be her father in this world and the next and to help her. And because Alcoholics Anonymous, I was, I was there for her. You know, when her light left the room, I was there for her. I was her father. And I loved her. And what I've come to believe is this, and this is just my personal experience. I don't believe that we're just a bag of bones covered with flesh, with a heartbeat and a mind. There's something else about it. It's an essence. The, the religious call it the golden cord, the silver thread. My friend Scott talked about it. You know, he said, there's something that binds us, that binds me to you and you to me. It's an essence. It's a being. And it's transmitted when we rub up against each other. And what happens is we keep that and we pass it on. And what my daughter gave to me was a sense of love that I never had before. And I got to get through Alcoholics Anonymous and make an amends. And I thought, well, that's nice. Won't go any further. One of the guys that I sponsor, is a name, his name is Steven. And uh, he's got a son. His son is Evan. Evan has cerebral palsy with a seizure disorder. And he resented his son in much the same way as I resented. And we worked these spiritual exercises we call the steps. And a father was restored to his son and a son to a father. And I've seen him and he loves his son. And he's together. And that's Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what we do here, the seemingly impossible. This process, I mean, I can't, my job is not to stand here and say, go forth and sponsor. But for me, for this alcoholic, I want you to understand that a lot of this, I, I got a lot of relief in the steps, but it didn't become real until I started sponsoring, until I tried to convey to another man what my experience was. And through that experience, I got belief. I mean, we talk about faith and belief in Alcoholics Anonymous. Faith requires action. Belief doesn't. Belief is the result of action. I got up this morning, I flipped the switch, I believed it would go on because I'd flipped it a couple times and it went on. It might be off, might not work, the light bulb may not work, but I believe it based on my prior experience. Here with faith, you have to take action. You have to take action with these steps without knowing what the result will be. And when I got here, I was absolutely convinced it wouldn't work for me. And Michael told me, he said, that's fine. You can demand proof. You can expect miracles. All you've got to do is do the work, and the work will do you. And that's my experience. You know, I work with a lot of guys, and, and I like to look at it like it's a recipe. You know, the, the, the steps are a program of recovery, but they're designed to be followed in order. It's like a recipe. It, it's like if, uh, if I say to you, go bake a cake. So you go to the store, you get the cake box, you got to buy some eggs, you got some water, maybe some milk, you got to whip it up, you got to heat the oven. You got to follow directions in order. Now, if the person that I sponsor does this and he goes through all the steps, all the 12 steps, and then he says, well, I, I'm having a problem with this God thing. And I go over and I look and I say, well, what's that? He says, well, that's a cake. Now, it doesn't look like a cake. It does have an appearance of being a pastry, but it's lopped over to one side. It's just, it's bizarre looking. It smells terrible. Did you follow instructions? He says, yeah, I did. 
all the instructions. Well, I don't really like eggs. Okay, you're not going to get a cake. You know, I run into guys all the time saying, you know, I do, I do everything. I just, uh, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't pray and meditate. Okay, you don't have to, but you're not working the steps. Don't tell me it doesn't work if you don't do it all. If you do it all and it doesn't work, then we'll have a conversation. And I got to tell you, I've never had anybody do it all where it doesn't work, ever, ever. So one of the things that I want to talk about is. I had, a, I had a huge resentment against my wife. And it seems kind of ridiculous now, but to me at the time. And it goes like this. I've spent a lot of time and effort getting sober. I've done a lot of work. I'm a man of God. You know, I, I pray and meditate. I've led people through the light. You know? I've really done a lot of work. And she apparently does not appreciate all the hard work I've done for us. She really does. It's shocking. And, and how this manifests itself in my relationship is... She takes the trash and recycling and she puts them out on the stoop on the side for me to get in the morning. Because apparently that's all I mean to her is a trash and recycling guy. I'm not really a caring, loving husband that's been brought back into the household in full as a loving partner. I'm just really the trash and recycling guy. Now, I can intuit this all by myself. And what happens is I pick up the trash and recycling, I take it out to the trash and recycling, I dump it, I'm just, I'm pissed. I'm muttering to myself, I'm just out of my mind. So I'm going to teach her. I don't talk to her for like three weeks. She's relieved that I'm not bothering her. Now the Alanons will understand this because we're playing totally different games. It's like checkers and chess, checkers and chess. She's like, whoo, that guy's not bothering me. I'm like, I'm, I'm teaching that bitch, you know. And it's crazy. Finally, I get to the point where I'm writing inventory. And I'm writing inventory about it. And I'm t- talking to Michael. And he's like, well, have you, have you talked to her about it? Oh, no. Oh, no. I know my wife. Well, are you sure? Yeah, I know. I know what she's thinking. Oh, really? You know? Oh, yeah, I can tell what she's thinking. Well, is it possible she's wrong? Yeah, it's possible. Um, but I'm, I'm, no. I know. I know this is what she thinks of me. All right, what are you going to do about it? So I'm praying and meditating. Because I need an answer. This is killing me. It sounds stupid, but it's killing me. I mean, trash and recycling is killing me. So I'm praying and meditating. I'm writing inventory. And, and, and if you're new, it comes pretty quick. Maybe eight, nine months. It's not bad. And uh, what happens is I get patience, tolerance, love, and understanding. That's the answer. I've got to be patient, tolerant, love, and understanding. So I, I pray for this. And now I'm taking out the trash recycling. I'm patient, tolerant, loving, and understanding. I'm, it's okay. I'm a man of God. Now, sometimes I'll put it in there and I'll twitch a little bit, but it doesn't last. I'm good. I'm working with guys. Everything's fine. About three years ago, we get a dog, Zoe, golden retriever. Lovely dog. She poops. Dogs crap. That's what they do. In the morning, I take her for a walk. She craps, put it in the bag, put it in the trash. I go to a meeting at night, dog craps, my wife puts it in a bag, takes it, puts it on the stoop next to the trash and recycling. Now I've worked through the trash and recycling, but now we've got the poop. More inventory. Again, Michael says, if you, no, I haven't talked to her. I, mean, I, got, I got this, Michael. I got it. All right. This only takes a few weeks, and now a few weeks I'm okay. Trash recycling and poop, no problem. Trash recycling, I got it, I got it, no problem. Do this for a few years. A little over a year ago, I went out the front door instead of the side door. I didn't get the trash recycling and poop. Get to my office, I realized I didn't get the trash recycling and poop. I'm like, oh man, I've got to make amends for this. I go back, it's Monday night. I, my, my Monday night men's stag is that night, so I'm getting ready to go to the meeting. We're having dinner. My wife and daughter are there, and the dog is there, and I'm talking to my wife, and I say, hey, Lynn, you know, I want to apologize. I didn't get the trash recycling and poop this morning. She's like, huh? 
you know, the trash recycling poop, it's my job. So I've been doing it, you know, it's my job, and I didn't get it. So goes, what? So now I've learned to pause when agitated, but I am out of my mind. Because I'm thinking, what, 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 do, you, what, what do you not understand? I've been doing this for over a decade. Trash recycling and poop, it's my job, I didn't get it. What don't you understand? But I didn't say that. I said, you know, baby, the trash recycling and poop, I know it's my job. I've been doing it for a while. And I, I went out the front door and said, the side door, I forgot. She goes, I do not know what you're talking about. You know we have possums and raccoons and skunks. I don't put that out there for you. I just, I don't like to go out there at night. I figure I'll get it in the morning or maybe the kid or you, but I don't set that out there specifically for you. <laughs> now, I'm not saying anything, but I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, I've written inventory for over a decade on this. I mean, there are small forests that have lost their lives so I can write inventory. I've prayed, I've meditated, I'm a man of God. I've worked through this and now you're telling me that it has no basis in fact. None. So I looked there and said, love you, babe, gotta go. Because I, I, I can't even handle that, you know? I go to the meeting and I, I'm, I'm talking to my sponsor, I'm out of my mind. I'm he is laughing his butt off. Because apparently, even after some time, we are sent to entertain our sponsors. It's a required thing. I don't understand it. And he's laughing, he's calling people, he's saying, hey, look what Lamb did, you know? And he says, well, I got good news and bad news. Oh, God, all right. What's the bad news? Because it never ends. It never ends. I'm like, well, what's, what's the good news? He says, well, the good news is there's always something to do. And there's always somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous. Too. And if you're new, you can find that someone tonight. Thanks for having me here. I'm alcoholic. It's good to be here. It's good to be sober. It's always an honor and a privilege to be invited to share in Alcoholics Anonymous. And I must say, Jason, I am disappointed that I missed the eight kids and the cats and dogs. It sounds like that's a pretty wild household. That's good. That's good. If you're new, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. I want to especially welcome Ricky. You know, I got to tell you, I, I do a few of these. Doug does a ton of them. And it always cracks me up when they do the countdown and the person who has the least time is invited to come up and they don't know if it's a good thing or not. You know, I mean, they're, they're, they're like, you know, I mean, what's going to happen? You know, you don't know. I mean, it's, we're kind of a suspect crowd, you know, and, and generally they haven't been warned about what's going to happen and they're, they're walking up and there's going to be a presentation. They're going to get a book. It's kind of like an award, but they're not sure. It's, it's like being told on your cell block, you've been, you've been voted most attractive on your cell block. I mean, you know it's an honor, but you're not sure you want to accept the reward. And you're really not sure what's going to happen afterwards, you know. And then you're not sure if you're going to like it even, you know. But he's, he came up, and, and that was great. That was great. And if you're new, again, welcome to Alcoholics Anonymous. You're probably sitting here. You're on your fifth speaker today. Fifth speaker. 
and you're sitting there and you're looking at some bald fat man who's going to talk to you about Alcoholics Anonymous for probably over an hour. And you're probably sitting there thinking, man, has it come to this? <laughs> yes, it has. It has. And the reality is we grow on you, but if you're like me, it takes a while. You just got to lean into it. You got to lean into it and do the work. I got here on July 27, 1996. I've been consecutively sober since that date. It wasn't by design. It wasn't by plan. I didn't want to come here. I didn't want to get sober. I had a DUI. I used to drive drunk all the time, but I finally got a DUI. And the judge in Southern California sentenced me to go to six AA meetings in six months. I, too, thought it was excessive. I did. And I didn't want to go. I didn't want to go. I, I knew that y'all had conventions and conferences like this. I had heard this wicked rumor that y'all don't drink in Alcoholics Anonymous. I don't want to not drink, so I don't want to go. So I hold out, and I wait till I've got five weeks left to do six AA meetings in five weeks. Now, in Southern California at the time, back in 96, they probably had a couple thousand meetings a week. Now they've got about 3,000 meetings a week, so they're all over the place. You can't hardly walk to a liquor store without running into an AA meeting. But uh, I'm thinking, you know, I've got a kind of active social calendar. I'm, I'm kind of busy. I'm not sure how I'm going to fit. I mean, one a week, that's a lot. Right? You know, and, and I'm not sure how I can fit this in because I, I haven't had a psychic change yet. I've got a real perception problem. Everything is about me, and I don't, I don't want to go. You know, and finally I, I wait. I've got, you know, five weeks to do six AA meetings. I'm kind of freaking out. And finally I go to my first AA meeting, July 27, 1996. That's my sobriety date. And I went to a morning meeting in Hermosa Beach at a clubhouse. Out there they call them Milano Clubs. And these are just buildings that they host meetings in. And right next to where the meeting room is, they have a coffee bar. And there's double doors that go from the coffee bar into the meeting room. And I walk through those late. The meeting starts at, I think, 7. I'm there around 7.05, fashionably late. They're going about their business. They're doing their thing. To the left of me, there's a counter that they have all kinds of AA paraphernalia crap, like books and literature and stuff that I don't want to read on it. And then to the right, there's a coffee-making machine, and there's supposed to be a trash can underneath it, but that morning there was a chair. It's not supposed to be there, but it was there that morning. I popped in the door, I looked at you, you looked at me, and I sat in the chair. As far away from you as I possibly could be, separate and apart, the way I like it. You looked at me, and there were a couple empty chairs, and they were very nice, lovely people. They're waving at me. They're patting the chair. Come on down. I'm like, no way. Hmm. This is not happening. I'm not going, you can't make me. And the reality is I'm terrified, but I'm giving you the, hey, back off look. You don't want any part of this. Don't bother me. I won't bother you. Just go about your business. And you did. And we, we, we're big on birthdays. You all do anniversaries primarily out here, but we do birthdays. We do them every day. And Doug talked about them. We have, like, have big cakes and it's a big celebration. But I've never been to AA before. I don't know they're doing this. And they're having a birthday that morning. And, and you know, somebody like... Jason or Carl has given somebody like Jay a cake for some ungodly period of time, like actually years. And they don't have a cake. What's happening is Jason's got an inverted styrofoam cup, and he puts a candle on it in the back of the room. And he lights this contraption, and then he cups it like it's the Olympic torch or something. And he, and he, and he very reverently walks it up to the front of the room, and you know, Jay's patiently waiting for him, and then everybody sings happy birthday, like Doug said, completely out of key, completely out of key. And then Jay blows out this monstrosity of candle wax and molten styrofoam and thanks 
Jason for the cake. Well, I'm new, but that ain't a cake. I mean, it's not, it's not even a pastry. You know, I mean, it's, it's not a cake. It's not a pastry. And people are talking about, if you want what we have, join us. I'm thinking, I don't think so. I mean, you guys can't tell the difference between pastry, cake, and styrofoam. I mean, this is pretty bizarre. And then it was a sharing meeting. You know, Doug's first meeting was a speaker meeting. My first meeting was a sharing meeting. Well, I don't listen to this crap. You know, and I'm not planning on staying there. So I'm thinking, I'm just going to, I'm, I'm been kind of busy out there. I'm going to take a nap. Now, they got folding metal chairs back then that are kind of old, and they're canted off to one side. So I'm slouched down in this thing. I'm shutting my eyes. I've got my arms crossed. So I can take a little nap. And you're sharing. And they called on a guy named Dick Dolmage. Dick died with 15 years of sobriety. He helped a lot of people to include me. But I didn't much care for Dick or anybody else for quite some time. And Dick, on the other hand, loved Alcoholics Anonymous. He was a retired fire captain. He was totally lit up for AA. But he was slightly deaf. Now, everybody in the room knew Dick, and they knew how he shared every morning. But I don't, because I'm new. And I'm trying to fall asleep. And they called on Dick, and Dick shared. And because he's slightly deaf, he said, Hi, my name's Dick, and I'm an alcoholic! Now, if you're trying to go to sleep, and you're verging heavily towards the chunky side, and you're on a folding metal chair that's slanted, you almost slide off and hit the ground. I mean, I'm, I'm going like this. I'm trying to grab onto the coffee-making machine. I'm freaking out, because this has is, this is really disturbed me. And people are doing, like, it's very rude, what you're just doing right there. They're laughing at me, and they're pointing at me, and they're going, hey, you're new. And I'm like, hey, screw you. You know, I don't, I, this is not, you shouldn't be laughing at me. This is not cool. This is not cool. And you think it's even funnier. You know, and you keep laughing, and I'm pissed, and I'm thinking, I'm, I hate this place. Finally, the meeting's over. I get up to leave, and like we do at the end of every meeting, somebody says, we're going to pray. Okay, I've been to church. I can do this. We're going to pray. I stand up to say a prayer in a civilized manner. Next thing I know, the chuckleheads to my left and right grab my hands. Ooh. I mean, what's, I mean, I didn't give you permission to do that. That's my personal space. I don't, but I'm, I'm, I, I'm not going to say anything. I figure it'll, it'll pass, right? So they said a prayer. I have no idea what the prayer was. Lord's Prayer, Serenity Prayer, Third Step, Seventh Step. We could have sung Kumbaya. I have no idea. I wanted the thing to be over. It's finally over. Somebody said, Amen. I went to let go. You know, catch and release, right? No. They don't let go. I, I'm in a pervert daisy chain of 50, 60, 70 people. My arms start rocking back and forth. And they're all looking at me going, keep coming back. It works if you work it. And I'm thinking, I have died and gone to Huckleberry Hill. <laughs> no, I knew it would be bad. I knew it would be bad, but you've exceeded my expectations. This is, I can't stand this. I'm trying to get out of there. There's, there's people trying to give me stuff. There's a guy saying, here's, here's a phone list. I don't need a phone I don't like people. I'm not calling anybody. I don't need a phone list. You know, here's a meeting director. I'm not coming back. I don't need that thing. Somebody else goes, hey, it's a big book. It's a big book. It'll, it'll save your life. I'm thinking, i got a complex set of social issues. I don't see how a book is going to save my life. And frankly, it's not even that big. A big book is like a coffee table book with pictures and stuff like that. This is just like a regular book. Somebody else goes, hey, man, you got a sponsor. I'm like, dude, I don't even watch NASCAR. You know, I'm, 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 I'm not okay with this. And I have total disdain for this thing that's going to save my life. And if you're new, i got to tell you, I was in that meeting almost every morning for about three years. And I would like to stand up here and tell you that my journey of recovery started then. But that's not my story. I want to emphasize, uh, uh, I'm not a spokesperson for AA. I don't think there is such a thing. I'm not an authority. I wasn't appointed. I wasn't anointed. I'm just an alcoholic up here tonight sharing his experience. You're here to have your experience. Not the person next to you, not your sponsor, not a sponsee. 
your experience. My experience is you get that experience by working the steps. But I didn't know that when I got here. And I also want to say that there are plenty of people that don't have my experience. And by that I mean they're able to come to Alcoholics Anonymous like I could take an Advil for a headache. And they're fine. They're fine. I am not fine. I'm going to meetings and I'm getting worse. And I don't understand it. I'm hearing, you know, people are saying things that are well-intentioned, well but I'm taking them out of context. They're saying, you know, meeting makers make it. Just go to meetings, kid. Don't drink and go to meetings. 90 meetings in 90 days, all of which is good advice. There are other people that are talking about the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. They're talking about sponsorship. They're talking about the steps, which is the program of recovery contained within the book. But, you know, I'm not drinking. I don't want to overreact here. You know? I mean, I don't want to get over sober or anything like that. I don't want to do things that, you know, there's no extra credit or anything. I'm, I'm thinking, because I hear what I want to hear when I want to hear it, and I just disregard everything else. I'm thinking, I should be getting better because I'm not drinking. So I should be feeling better. And I'm feeling worse. I'm feeling worse. I'm going to one, two, three meetings a day, and I am getting worse. People are talking about being restored to sanity in the second step. I feel like I'm going nuts. People are sharing. I'm hearing every second or third word. It's a lot of white noise. It's kind of scary. What's happening is I'm, I'm suffering from untreated alcoholism. Or more accurately, you are suffering from my untreated alcoholism. I'm a jackass at home. I'm a jackass at work. I'm a jackass at meetings. I come into meetings and old-timers look at me and they go, Lamb, just sit in the corner and don't talk to anybody. For God's sake, don't talk to any newcomers because they still have hope. You know, I mean, it was, it was bad. When I finally got a sponsor, Doug knows my sponsor, Michael, I mean, Michael used to greet me in the morning. He used to say, good morning, your surliness. Because I just, I was, I hated it. I hated it. And my experience in Alcoholics Anonymous is attitude is optional. It comes later. Sometimes people will get up at the podium and they'll say, Alcoholics Anonymous is for people who really want it. And other people will disagree and they say, oh, Alcoholics Anonymous is for people who really need it. My experience is it's for people who really do it. But I didn't understand that. Then. So I'm going out of my mind. I'm going out of my mind. And finally, I go on a business trip. I'm a, I'm a trial lawyer by trade. I go back to Minneapolis, and I'm in Pittsburgh. And I'm doing depositions. I'm getting ready to do a trial, and I'm supposed to be there all week. I finish around Wednesday or Thursday midday. I go back to my hotel room. Inside my hotel room, I have an honor bar. An honor bar. I'm a newcomer. I have no honor. But what they've given me is this little mini fridge with a key. I got the key. Inside it is everything I need. Two by two by two by two. Bourbon, scotch, gin, vodka, no tequila, which pissed me off, but a lot of other stuff, you know, domestic beer, imported beer. I mean, you could have a small party in that, and I want to drink. I want to drink. But I've been around Alcoholics Anonymous long enough, and I've heard enough of my story through you to know that I can't do this. I'm the kind of alcoholic. My wife sends me out to get milk. I come back three days later. You know, stuff happens. I meet Carl. We get to talking. And then I come back three days later, and I'm like, hey, baby, I got the milk. What's the problem? Now, the Al-Anons know what the problem is. It's called alcoholism. But I'm thinking, I've succeeded the task because I just compressed time. It doesn't mean anything. And I'm in this hotel room, and I'm out of my mind. I'm out of my mind. And I'm feeling separate and apart. And I love the big book, and I love the 12 and 12. But one of the things that I really enjoy that helped me early on that the old-timers will know about is a series of talks that a guy did back in 1975 named Chuck Chamberlain. 
and it was put in a book called A New Pair of Glasses. And that book has a diagram. It's a very simple diagram. It's only one diagram. And what Chuck does is he draws a circle. And Chuck puts all the people, plants, and animals in the universe. Life, good, God, whatever your concept of a higher power is, all inside the circle of life. And then Chuck, to the left of that, draws a stick man. And that's Chuck, and that's me, outside the circle of life, separate and apart, what the 12 and 12 calls anxious apartness. And what separates is a thin line, which he writes, ego or conscious separation from God. By the time we get to the 11th step, we're trying to get conscious contact. I'm new, I'm out of my mind, I haven't worked any steps. I have conscious separation and anxious apartness. The reality of this is, it is the big lie. Every alcoholic that I've worked with, and I've worked with a lot, has this same misperception. And it is through working the steps that I can change that perception to see the truth. But I'm out of my mind. I'm out of my mind. I'm pacing back and forth. I'm opening and shutting the honor bar, opening and shutting the honor bar. I inventoried it. I organized it. I try to distract myself. I'm watching television. I'm flipping back and forth between religious television and porno. Religious television. I, I didn't say it was a good plan. Okay, I'm a newcomer. I mean, the bad part is I'm getting a little confused as to who's doing what on what channel. But that's a whole other issue. <coughs> and finally, I go, I'm out of my mind, so I go inside the honor bar, and I, I drink everything in the honor bar except the alcohol. And I drink this stuff manically. I mean, I drink the soda. I drink the regular soda. I drink the diet soda. I drink the fizzy water. I drink the flat water. I drank tonic water. Ooh, that's right. I mean, it has no, there's nothing without gin. I mean, it's bad. It's like bad tequila. You know, your face kind of caves in. You can work through it, but there's no end game. You don't go anywhere but get pissed off. I mean, it's just, it's a bad deal, and I'm out of my mind, and whatever you want to call it, whether it's the dumb luck of the alcoholic, normality used to call it seconds and inches, I view it now as the grace of God. I don't drink. I go downstairs, get in a car, go to the airport. Drive to the airport, get back to Los Angeles. I get up the next morning. Again, I'm having, I'm, I've had time to think. If I have time to think, I have time to plan. So I got a plan. And I'm thinking this is a good plan. I'm about 100 days stark raven sober. I had spent 13 and a half years in the Army before I got out. And then another two and a half years before I got sober. And when I got out in 1993, I'd gone through airborne training and ranger training and special forces training. And then the Army had sent me to law school. And I'd acquired a bunch of stuff that I had in a go bag. It's a kit bag. I had weapons, I had demolition, and I had 13 passports in this go-bag. And I didn't turn them in in 1993 when I left the Army, and I didn't even think I was stealing. I just thought, you know, I mean, this could come in handy one day. You know, I mean, I, I didn't see it as stealing. I've since gotten rid of, all, of everything. And I wasn't going to use the weapons of the demo. I wasn't going to go Columbine or anything, but I need the passports. And I've got this plan, and I'm thinking it's a, it's a brilliant plan. This is what I'm going to do. I need to take my blue tourist passport my regular passport that has my name, Steve Lamb, on it. And I need to leave the country under my name. I need to fly up to British Columbia. Once I get to British Columbia, I'll start flipping passports and identities. I'll head east for a week or two. I'll come back in a couple weeks. I'll be back in British Columbia. Steve Lamb will cease to exist. Now, I got a wife. I got kids. I don't think of them for 10 seconds, 5 seconds, 1 second. They're not part of the equation. People in Alcoholics Anonymous have been talking about geographics. I don't see that. I think I'm just making a career change, and they're really not involved. 
That's how selfish, self-centered, and self-seeking I am. And I'm afraid. And then my plan is I'm going to head down to Costa Rica. I've got some former associates of mine. They're doing some rather interesting marketing and distribution down there. And that's my newcomer plan. And so I lay all this stuff out. And the 13 passports that I should have turned in in 1993, they're all current. They haven't expired. But my blue tourist passport has expired. It's expired. And I'm out of my mind because I'm thinking I can't execute this simple plan because I need to leave the country on my name or it doesn't work. Now, the reality is uh, it, it doesn't matter about sobriety, but, and it doesn't appear like this very often, but I'm pretty highly educated. The Army sent me to law school at University of Southern California. When I was in the Army, they sent me to get a Master of Laws right next to the University of Virginia. I'm licensed to practice before the Supreme Court of the United States. But that morning in 1996, I did not have the cognitive ability in my brain as a newcomer to realize this is pre-9-11. I could have flown to British Columbia on my driver's license. I didn't even need my blue tourist passport. But I couldn't, I mean, that was just too much. I couldn't do that. And I'm sitting there and I'm almost in tears. And what's looping through my head is one of these sick, pathetic sayings that they say in the South Bay. Y'all are pretty refined here. Maybe you don't say it. But what they say back there is if your ass is falling off, put it in a bag, take it to a meeting. Yeah, you're nodding your head, but what does that mean, really? I mean, what are you talking, like a hefty double wide? You know, I mean, well, not you, me. I'm just, I'm just, but apparently it has something to do with me going to a meeting. And I got, I got nothing else, so I go to this meeting. I'm at this meeting, a guy who became my grand sponsor who I didn't like, Jim. He was talking, and he was talking about a sponsor. And he said, if you don't have a sponsor, you need a sponsor, see me after the meeting. And I hadn't tried that. So I went up to him after the meeting, and I looked at him right in the shoes because I couldn't look at him in the face. And I said, Jim, I heard you talking about sponsorship. I've been around about 100 days. I thought it's time I should interview for a sponsor. Because that's what I thought I was going to do. People have been talking about, you're laughing, but people are talking about, you know, choose wisely. Find someone who wants what you have. Well, how do you do that if you don't interview? Again, I've got a complex set of social issues. Not anybody's suitable for me. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty special. I don't, may not look like it, but I am. You just got to talk to me for a little while. I'll tell you all about it, right? And Jim just shakes his head and goes, you are pathetic. And he takes me outside and he introduces me to a guy I've never met before. He says, Michael, Steve, Steve, Michael, sponsor, sponsor, go with God. And he walks away laughing. And I'm thinking, this ain't right. This is not right at all. This is not, no, this, and it's not funny. It is absolutely not funny. But Michael, on the other hand, is very excited. Because he's got a live one. And if you're new, I've got to tell you, we have a vampiric need for new blood. It, it borders on the macabre. We tend to pick you off in the corner, and people will fight over who gets to sponsor you. But he's got one. He's been delivered to him. Michael takes out a card. He's got a pen. He's writing his name and his address and his phone number on his card. And he asked me a couple questions that I like to ask the people that I sponsor. He says, do you have a big book? Now, in my mind, my mind is going a million miles a minute. I'm not saying anything. What I'm thinking is, yeah, I got a, I got a, big, I got, I got a big book. I got a big book. I got, I'm not reading it with you. I don't even know who you are. I mean, this is wrong. I should be able to interview. I don't know who this guy is. He's younger than me. And I, yeah, I got a big book. Do you have a 12 and 12? I'm like, yeah, I'm not reading it with you. I'm not, and by the way, he's got this lazy, wandering eye. You know, it's looking off to the side. <laughs> it's really pretty creepy. I mean, it's, it's creepy. And I, the worst part was when we went to do sexual inventory, he said, we're going to invite God in. 
And I'm like, where is he? You know, because, I mean, it kind of freaked me out. I mean, I'm new. I don't know what's going on. But I said, yeah, I got a 12 and 12. He says, good, you're going to need them. Be at my house Monday night at 630. And everything in my body said no. But what I said was, okay. And if you knew, that was my first step in Alcoholics Anonymous. I always knew I was powerless over alcohol. But I didn't accept that my life was unmanageable until I asked that man to sponsor me, even in the lame way that I did. And we met every Monday night at 6.30. We read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. He had me look up words that I thought I knew the meaning to. We got to a prayer. We said the prayer. We got to a step. We worked the step. We also read the 12 and 12. Same thing. Spent a lot of time on it, 6 and 7, because there's not a lot in the big book on it. And it saved my life. It saved my life. And, you know, the first four chapters of the big book are almost related entirely to the first two steps. There's other stuff in there, but they're really heavily influenced on the first two steps. And I, again, I didn't have a problem with the first step. I was there on the first step. I, you know, I'm powerless over alcohol. My life's unmanageable. The second step, you know, is do, 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 am I, do I believe a power greater than myself can restore me to sanity? I know what they're talking about, God. I mean, like Doug, I'm a, I'm a thinker. You know, I, look, I read ahead. I, I know what's going on here. I know that God's involved. And I'm like, well, I believe it's happened for you, Michael, and I've seen it's happened for other people. I don't believe it will happen for me, but I'll concede that it is possible. He's like, okay, that's sufficient. You're willing to believe. That's sufficient. Okay, now I've got to turn my will and my life over to this thing that I understand. So now we're having a concept, we're having a discussion about God. And he says, look, I want you to understand something. If you have a religious affiliation or belief, nothing in the big book wants to push you away from that. In fact, it says quite clearly, be quick to see where religious people are right. If you, however, have a problem with God, consider this. The big book uses the word God over a hundred times. Higher power twice, creative intelligence a couple times, universal mind a few times. Those are words. They're designed to point you in a direction to an experience that we're hoping you have by taking the steps. The steps are a set of spiritual exercises that are designed to allow each individual to find, develop, and maintain a conscious contact of a God, with a God, of his or her own understanding so that they can live and move and have their being out there in the world. Now, this word God no more defines or limits this essence or being that we're hoping you get into contact with than if I were to say Lisa defines or limits her. You know, you know who I'm talking about. You can see who she is. She talked up here earlier today. It was a great talk. But you don't know her. You don't understand her. You know, unless you're her sponsor or someone she sponsored or one of her close friends or husband, you don't really know her. But you know where to look. And that's what we're talking about. And the other thing he said to me was like, think about it like music. Everybody loves music. Everybody loves music. Some people like country western. Some people like rock. Some people like classical. We're not here to try to convince you what type of music we like or you like. We're here to tell you to seek, find, listen, and then enjoy what you listen to to get in tune with the infinite. If you keep looking, you'll find it. I'm thinking, this guy is nuts. This guy's like a mystic muffin, a cosmic cupcake. I don't know what this guy's talking about. But I'm like, okay, well, how will I know if I've done a third step? He says, well, you're going to do it your whole life. But a good general indication is if you start right in your fourth step. Okay. No problem. 
So now I'm writing my four step. And he gave me specific instructions. But before I talk about that, I don't like to talk about my drinking for a lot because uh, I'd rather talk about recovery. But for the new people, I want to give you a, like a little snapshot of what my drinking was like. My personal chapter three. And it goes like this. I'm a trial lawyer by trade. So before I got sober, the way I would prepare for trial is I would drink beer and shoot tequila. Have you tried it? It's very effective. I mean, what happens is I'm drinking beer and shooting tequila, and I can, in my mind's eye, the whole courtroom is laid out in front of me. I go in, I pick a jury, I make an opening statement, I present all the evidence, I examine and cross-examine witnesses, I make a closing argument, which, by the way, is brilliant. The jury goes back, they deliberate, and all in my mind's eye, and they come back out and they rule in my favor, verdict in my favor, judgment in my favor, all while drinking beer and shooting tequila. It's a miracle. It's a miracle. It's unbelievable. The problem is about the time the jury comes back, I go down because I pass out. So before I start this exercise, I set alarm clocks at about three to five minute intervals, four, five, six of them around the room because one or two probably won't wake me up. Next morning on the third, fourth, fifth alarm clock, wake up, turn them off, Shower, shave, put on a suit, put on a tie, go to work. The, the particular morning that I'm thinking about was a typical morning. I'm going to trial downtown Los Angeles, Los Angeles Superior Court. My client is a guy named Brian. He's a high finance guy out of New York City. The case is a commercial case. It's other people's money. They've been trying to settle it for a while, but we can't settle it, so we're picking a jury. We get ready to pick a jury. And the judge looks at my client and looks at the other client and says, look, you've been trying to so sort this out for months now, and it's just a matter of money, uh, keep trying to sort it out because I don't, I don't want you to tie up my courtroom for three, four, five weeks if you guys can settle this. So keep talking. So they did. We're picking a jury around 11.30. Brian's really excited. He tells me, hey, we've settled. It's, it's in his favor, several million dollars. He's very happy. He tells the judge. The other side agrees. They put it on the record. The judge releases us. Brian is really excited. He says, I, you know, it's, it's kind of early. It's before noon, Lamb, and you don't know how you feel about this, but it seems like we should celebrate. Um, I know it's early, but do you want to have a drink? I'm thinking, what a country. Yeah, I mean, I can't wait to have a drink. Because I'm thinking I'm not going to be able to prepare for trial until later, but now it's before noon and he's going to buy. So we go to the Grand Avenue Bar, which is on Grand Avenue and 5th. It's a high-end sports bar right next to the Biltmore Hotel. Very rich. I drink beer, I shoot tequila. I drink at home a lot. The bars I drink at are very nice bars. They have this really beautiful fragrance. They call it eau de urine. Very, very attractive. I'm not a high-end guy. This is a high-end bar. And Brian goes in, he tells the bartender to take a dusty bottle of cognac from the back of the bar. He puts it on top of the bar. And he has him pour two shots. He brings out two large brandy sniffers. He plops them on the bar. And he pours one fluid ounce in each one. Now, when you put a shot in a tequila glass, it damn well should go near the top. Right? It, 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 it better if it's at the top so you've got to lean over because you, you don't spill anything. But if he's a good bartender, you can, there, you can see it. There's no question that there's tequila in a shot glass. When you put a fluid ounce in a brandy snifter, it, it's kind of sad and desperate. I mean, you can hardly see it. It's lonely. You know, it just kind of shimmers in the distance, and you're looking over there, and I'm looking at it, and Brian can tell I'm confused. He says, you never had cognac before. No, I never had cognac. Pay attention. There's a whole protocol. There's a process to this. 
And again, he's a high-end finance guy. This guy's right out of GQ. He says, look, you want to take this granny sniffer, you want to cup it in the palm of your hand so the palm of your hand makes contact with the glass. That's important because the heat from the palm of your hand will go through the glass and it will warm up the cognac. That's important because as the cognac warms up, it releases the bouquet. Now I'm thinking, this is totally unnecessary with tequila. I mean, you don't have to go through this process at all with tequila, but he's buying whatever, and they say, you know, bring it up to your nose. Don't snort it, don't sniff it, just take that cognac and allow the bouquet to waft into your nostrils. And then you want to back it down, you want to make sure it's the right temperature. I'm thinking, we're going to drink this stuff, right? You know, and he's like, yeah, then we, you want to bring it up to your lips, you don't want to drink it, you don't want to sip it, you just want to allow the cognac to drape across your palate. Now by now, my, my eyes twitching, my teeth are itching, you know, you get that itchy teeth need to drink, and I'm just kind of rocking back and forth, right? And Brian goes through the whole process, and he shows me, and, it, and it's, it's beautiful. I mean, like I said, it's right out of GQ. And he says, okay, it's your turn. I'm like, my, my turn, my, I love my turn. I love my turn, my turn, I love my turn, love my turn, love my turn. I'm trolling around thinking, how, how warm does it need to be, right? So I'm going to bring it up, and I'm, I'm cool. I'm going to let it waft, and bam, I shoot it, just like tequila. You know, Brian looks at me, I look at him, I don't know who was more surprised. He says, man, what are you doing? I'm like, I, I, I don't know. And I just, I just hung my head. I reverted to the alcoholic anthem. I said, uh, I'm sorry. He's like, man, that's a couple hundred dollars a shot. Can I have a beer? And he's a cool guy, so I'm drinking beer. And I have three or four beers, but, but Brian is, he, he's a generous guy. So pay attention, we're going to do it again. He just goes through the whole process again. Now it's my turn. I'm ready. And I'm thinking, I'm not where I was last night, but I'm warmed. I got this. I got this. I twirl it around, I bring it, bam, and it's gone again, you know? And there's no thought process. I mean, I didn't talk to it. It didn't ask me what I want to do. It just happened. And then he gives me that look, you know, that look. You know, that, like, man, that ain't right, you know? And, and, and he clearly, he's never read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, but he knows that I am bodily and mentally different than he is. And he's shaking his head. He goes, man, I'm going to go to the bathroom and... Uh, then I'm going to head back to the hotel room. It's about 1 o'clock, 4 o'clock, back in New York. I'm going to tell them the good news that I'm taking off. Yeah, okay, no problem. I'm drinking my beer. Paying, you know, paying attention to my beer. All right, I look over and I see his cognac. Bam! I drink that. You know, and I go to the bathroom. I come out. Now he's arguing with the bartender because somebody's stolen his cognac and it's very expensive. I remind him I'm a trial attorney. I know how to cross-examine people. I'm going around. I'm cross-examining people like Mary. You know, but, but Brian's not stupid. You know, he's now an ex-client. He's shaking his head. He's walking out. He's leaving. Now, a person who's not an alcoholic would be very disturbed. But my first thought is, okay, now we're on. Now I'm going to drink the way I want to drink. I sit down. I get a table. I start drinking beer and shoot tequila. Drinking beer, shoot tequila. Drinking beer, shoot tequila. Now, there are a lot of people when they drink a lot, they forget to eat. Not my story. <laughs> I like a light snack, like a couple burgers or a pizza. You know, nothing real heavy. And I drink beer, I shoot tequila, maybe I have a, have a pizza, and I don't mean to be gross and disgusting, but I see a bunch of you wearing bib overalls, I think you can handle it. I get musical, I start farting. Yeah, I know, it's not an impressive skill set, but, but when you're totally hammered, you're quite amused. You know, I got this whole symphony going on, I've got this purple haze thing, and, you know, and I'm just barking them off, and people are looking at me and shaking their heads, and I'm like, hey, these people just do not know how to party. And I'm drinking beer, I'm shooting to kill. There's two women off on the side. They're looking at me. 
And I'm looking at them. And I don't know about you, but when I drink like that, I can read minds. And I'm thinking, oh yeah. They want me. There's no question. Now, I probably just coughed up a chunk of pizza. And they're just shaking their heads. But I have a perception problem. I haven't had a psychic change. I haven't found a God of my understanding. And uh, I just... Uh, I'm a very inarticulate mind reader. So I keep drinking. And I keep farting. And I go to lift my leg to be particularly expressive, and I just completely miscalculate. <laughs> now, the worst part about it is, I think to myself, oh, yeah, I remember this. It's not like it hasn't happened before, right? But I'm, I'm like, okay, act cool, like nothing, you know, just don't, don't, show, don't show any emotion, and don't, don't put the cheek down. Got to keep the cheek up, you know, because you don't want to make contact, you know? Then you kind of finish the beer and just kind of slide out on one cheek. You know, just kind of, kind of like a big fat bulb ballerina. You just kind of slide off on one cheek and then I go to the bathroom and I go in the stall and I take off my jacket and my pants. I take off my drawers. I clean myself up. I put my pants back on. I put my jacket back on. I'm out at the sink, you know, rinsing my drawers out like any good alcoholic would, you know. And, you know, some guy walks in and looks at me and goes, Ew. And I'm like, hey, what's your problem, man? Don't you practice hygiene? I mean, stuff happens, you know. And, I get them wrung out, I ring them out, I go back in the stall and I take my jacket off, take my pants off, put the damp drawers back on, put my pants back on, I put my jacket back on, I'm, I'm walking outside, now I got kind of soggy drawers. And again, I got a perception problem. So my first thought is, man, I'm feeling kind of sexy. You know? Yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. Finally, they, they, they send me out of the bar. I drive home. I park in the driveway. My driveway, your driveway. I'm an equal opportunity driveway kind of guy. I don't care. Then I go through the front door. The front door is the garage door. There's no way in God's creation that I'm getting a key in the keyhole. Don't even try. I got a garage door opener. It's a double wide. It goes up. Don't park there. Just walk in there. To the right, there's some stairs. I go up the stairs, and, and there's a little fridge right there. And I hope I never forget this. I don't care if I've been out there for three hours or three days. I stop and I get a beer. It's what I do. I drink no matter what. I get that beer. I open the beer. I drink it. I walk upstairs where my lovely wife is in bed. I put the empty on a nightstand or maybe the floor. I crawl into bed with her. And on a good night, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning, I get up and I stagger around. And I maybe go in her closet or I'm in the hallway and I pee in her boots or the trash can or something like that. And on a bad night, I wet the bed. I wet the bed. Yeah, that's what I bring to the table. I am a, a vision for you. There's no question about it. When I, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, my wife was like, no, keep him. Don't have to give him back, you know. And uh, that's how I drink. I hope that's a liver. And that's how I drink, 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 and that's my chapter three. You know, that's my chapter three. And this happens over and over and over. But finally, I'm not drinking, I'm working the steps with Michael. And I get to the fourth step, and Michael says, I want you to do an inventory. I want you to do a resentment inventory, a fear inventory, a sexual misconduct inventory. And I'd like you to follow the outline in the book. And there are a lot of different inventory processes, and my belief is that you should do whatever your sponsor directs you to do. There's, there's good, good outlines, good workbooks, all kinds of stuff. 
But I'm a thinker. I'm a heavy thinker, and it gets me in a lot of trouble, and Michael knows that. So he says, look, you know, why don't you just do what it says on page 65? You look on page 65 for the resentment inventory, you'll notice that there's three columns. There's not even complete sentences. People talk about their life story. I don't really want to hear your life story. I would really like you to follow this process. You'll note that there's uh, two, three, four words in each column. They're not complete sentences. They're just bullet points. You, you don't really need more than two or three words per column. All you've got to do is write who you're resentful at. The person, the institution, the principal. What's the cause? Two or three words. What is the condition or what affects you now? Is it self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, security, personal relations, sexual relations? You can even put the acronym if you want. Very quick, just little words. And then on the fourth column, and there isn't a fourth column, but if you look on page 67, it says turning back to our list. We're going to identify our mistake, fault, and blame. So those are character defects. And he said, look, you're going to hear a lot of people in Alcoholics Anonymous say that the fourth column is my part. It doesn't say that in the book. It's a perfectly good shorthand, but I don't want you to look at it that way. Because you may have a problem with that. I'm like, what are you talking about? So just trust me. Sometimes people who get involved in my part, they tend to think that, you know, it's all about the cause, not the condition. The second column, not the third column. You always have mistake, fault, and blame as to the second or the third column, sometimes both. But not always the cause. I'm like, I, don't know, I don't know what he's talking about. I have no idea what he's talking about. Because he just asked me to do it. I said, okay, no problem. So I go and I write an inventory. And I write a fear inventory. And I write a sexual misconduct. It takes me a few weeks. He says, okay, now you're going to read it to me. And I come down, I sit down at his, on his couch, and I'm reading him this inventory. The first person on my inventory is my father. So I'm resentful at two words, my father. Second column, the cause, two words, deserted me. Now, Michael's prepared for a long talk, and I explained to him that when I was five years old, my father left. He went to Vietnam. He didn't die there. He just didn't come back. He was in the Air Force. He joined an outfit called Air America. He hooked up with the CIA. He was in Thailand, I don't know, six, seven, eight, ten years. It's hard to tell. He met a woman there, a Thai woman, my stepmother. He married her, apparently before he divorced my mom. And I have a half-sister. And I hardly heard from my father for years. He deserted me. What does it affect? Oh, pretty much everything. Self-esteem, pocketbook, ambition, security, personal relations, and sexual relations. My life is shot through with it. Other than that, it's not a problem. What's my fourth column, mistake, fault, or blame? Well, in relation to the second column, none. I was five years old. I didn't, I didn't you know, I don't, I don't have a role in that. How about now? I come into Alcoholics Anonymous, I'm 37 years old. By the time I'm doing my inventory, I'm 38. It's over three decades. So why, am I, why is my self-esteem, my pocketbook, my ambition, my personal relationship, why is that all still impacted three decades later? Am I selfish, self-centered, self-seeking? I don't think so. Dishonest? No. How about pride, greed, lust, anger, gluttony, envy, sloth? I write down anger. It's dissipated now. I just kind of have this, I just resent the SOB, you know, but I, I got it. I'm angry. I mean, for about 10 years, it was pure vitriolic hatred. But I write down anger. Some residual anger. Fear. A lot of fear. What does that look like? I love my father. And I showed him my love, and I gave him my love, and he abused it. And it's not safe for me to feel that way and react that way towards anybody. I cannot... There has to be a wall of insulation between me and you and you and me. You can't know me for who I am. It's not safe. I'm not going to let that happen to me ever again. Now, that does not make for good marital relations. doesn't make for good relations with the kids. doesn't even make for good relations with friends because I can't be myself. It's too scary. 
And then finally, as it says in 66 and 67, I'm unwilling to accept that my father is a child of God who could be spiritually sick like me. I'm unwilling to forgive him. Just don't want to do it. So I read this, and I'm getting ready to go on to the next person. And Michael stops me, because I don't realize this is going to be an interactive process. I don't realize he's helping me catalog these character defects. I don't realize that this is going to come into play in 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and 10 and 11, and is going to frame my conversation with God. But he does. He says, I, I got some questions. Well, what is it? Are you resentful at your father, right? Yeah. He deserted you, right? Yeah. And if I understand you correctly, you've got some residual anger, a lot of fear, and you don't want to forgive him. You're unwilling to accept that he could be spiritually sick like you. I said, that's right. And I've read ahead, Michael. I know there's a ninth step, and it's not going to happen. Ever. And he said, look, this program is based on honesty, open-mindedness, and willingness. But you've got to understand, all we're doing here is reading this. This is a catalog of your care. We're going to deal with that later. Don't worry about it. But he said, I got, I got one other question. I'm like, okay, what is it? He said, well, I know it's probably a little different in your mind. But when you told me your story the day you asked me to sponsor you, if I understand you correctly, you had this kit bag and you were going to get it, and you were going to get some passports, you were going to go to British Columbia, and you were going to fly to Costa Rica. And I don't think you said you were going to desert your wife and children, but you weren't taking them with you, were you? Well, my first thought was, oh, this is not going well at all. <laughs> this is not going the way I thought it was going to go at all. And what happened was I, I experienced what is referred to as ego deflation at depth. Sometimes we talk about a spiritual experience as the white light, this feeling of God. That certainly happens to some of our members. But what is not talked about a lot is this type of spiritual experience. It's a very real spiritual experience if I do something with it. What's happened is my sponsor has held a mirror of me up to me so I can see me for who I am. And if I can see me for who I am, maybe I can see you for who you are. If I can see you for who you are and me for who I am, maybe I can realize that we're all inside the circle of life. But it's very painful, and I don't like it, and I'm not comfortable with it. So now I've got some work to do, and I get rid of the rest of the inventory, and I, I get quiet, and I review what I've done. I think I've done a pretty thorough job, and I come back, and, uh, you know, I do six and seven, which is an ongoing process, and I get into my eighth step. And I've got this list, and I'm reviewing it with Michael. And he says, I don't see your father on the list. I'm like, your damn Skippy is not on the list. I told you he's not going to be on the list. So we reviewed, you know, 8 and 9, particularly in the 12 and 12, because it talks a lot about forgiveness there. We reviewed the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Michael's like, what do you think that means? I'm like, I think that's a damn trick question. That's what I think that means. You know what it means. It means that, you know, I'm only forgiven to the extent that I forgive. We reviewed the prayer of St. Francis. I mean, I, I, I get it. I get it. You know, if resentment is the number one offender, and from it stem all forms of spiritual disease, the only antidote for that, the only antidote for that is forgiveness. Because as long as I'm disturbed, I have a resentment. And the process is to try to get undisturbed. So I understand that, and I appreciate it, and I agree with it. But I won't do it. So he's like, are you pray for the willingness? No problem. So now I'm into the ninth step. I've made some amends. Things are going well. Uh, made amends to my wife. And, uh, you know, I'm back in the big bed. You know, I don't quite have regular crossover privileges yet. But, you know, it's, it's better than it was. Things are better with the kids. And, you know, but uh, there's still some separation with my wife. And I'm talking to Michael about it. And he says, well, you know, 
this is a relationship issue. And maybe if you fix this relationship issue with your father, your relationship with your wife would get better. I I understand in principle how that would work. And I agree with you completely. Are you willing to do it? No. So I keep praying. I keep praying. And this goes on for a matter of years. Finally, after a number of years, he makes it on the list. But I don't know what I'm going to do. And I like to have specific direction on what to do. Now, I've got an active 10-step process now, an active 11-step process. And uh, I'm, I'm sponsoring guys. And I'm leading them through the steps. And they're finding a God of their understanding. I'm a man of God. I'm walking amongst them. But I don't want to do this thing, this one thing. So finally, he's on the list, but I don't know what to do. And I asked Michael, what do I do? He's like, I don't know. Pray and meditate. It'll come to you. So I'm praying and meditating. And then I made a huge mistake. I told Michael that I was going to go up to Anchorage, Alaska to do some depositions. Michael got really excited. Because he was praying and meditating for me, too. He said, this is great. You'll make amends to your father. Because your father, you told me, he lives in Wasilla. It's just outside of Anchorage. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not connecting these two dots at all. I'm like, I, you know, and that's not what I, I just said I'm going to go do a debt. No, no, no. He's like, you know, I'm praying, you're praying, we're both praying. I think God's answered our prayer. I don't think, I don't think he's answered our prayer at all. He said, well, get quiet, you know, and see what comes to you. And I did for a couple days, and that was the answer. But I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to make amends. And I'm uncomfortable. And I ask him, what do, I, what do I do? I'll go up there. But what do I do? He says, you know what? It'll be all right. Ask God for direction. I did. And all I got was just get on the plane. I wanted, speci- I wanted to know what to say. And nothing was happening. Nothing was coming to me. But I got on the plane. I flew up to Anchorage. I told him I was coming up. I uh, go through the terminal and I see him. And the first thing I notice, he's a lot smaller, a lot older than I remember. And he's kind of he's shuffling towards me like he wants to come towards me, but he's uncertain. And he's, he's lifting his arms, but he's really uncertain. I, on the other hand, am walking towards him with purpose. I have no idea what the purpose is. But I'm an Alcoholics Anonymous. When I make a commitment, I follow through. I'm walking towards him. I don't know what I'm going to do. I get up to him without thinking. I just reached out and did one of the things that I hated people doing to me when I first got here. I grabbed him and I hugged him. And my father buried his head in my shoulder. And he cried for about five minutes. And forgiveness occurred. I didn't have to say anything. I just had to show up for the experience. So I go back to Los Angeles and, wow, it's amazing. My relationship with my wife gets better. Who knew? You know, it's amazing. Who knew? And, uh, you know, things are going okay. And one of the things that I like to talk about, because I like to talk about amends. Amends are important. You know, my experience is sometimes people hold up, they don't do amends, and it can really bite them in the butt afterwards. I mean, actually, we frame the beginning of Alcoholics Anonymous, June 10th, 1935, not as the date of Dr. Bob's sober birthday. In fact, he had a beer and a goofball that day and went out and did anal surgery on some poor schmuck. Why, that's a historic moment on that day, and we're not even sure that that's the actual date. Some people say it's within a week of that. But why we picked that date is because that's the date that Dr. Bob had come back from an AMA convention that he got drunk on because he didn't want to make amends. And after he did surgery, he went out and made amends. He was gone almost all afternoon. And he made amends, and he stayed sober. One of the amends that I had to make when I first got here was to my daughter, Ashley. My daughter, Ashley, was born with cerebral palsy with a severe seizure disorder. One of the many things I'm not proud of is I resented her before I got here. 
and after I got here. And I had to do a lot of work and a lot of inventory on that. Because a man is not supposed to be resentful about his daughter. You know, what's the reason? Because she wasn't normal? Because in my mind, I had to take care of her? I don't know. I don't know, but I resent. it was killing me. It was killing me. And I did a lot of work on this, and I did a lot of prayer. I did a lot of meditation. I finally got to the point where I went down and made amends to my daughter. My daughter, at this point in time, was in a 24-hour care facility in San Diego because when she would have a seizure, she would go into status. And if they didn't get her within, you know, 10 minutes, she would die. I mean, she just had seizures all day long. She couldn't talk. She couldn't walk. She was in a, a wheelchair. And, and I got to the point where, through this amends process, a father was restored to a daughter and a daughter to a father. And I loved my daughter. And I'd, we'd go down there and we'd put a balloon around her wheelchair. We'd take her down to, to uh, SeaWorld. This is before the, they started eating the trainers and stuff. But, um, you know, we'd take her down to SeaWorld. It was kind of an idyllic place before that happened. And we'd take her to the zoo and stuff, and she'd laugh and giggle, and the wind would blow through her hair, and it'd ruffle the balloon. And it was great. And it was great. And I, and I would talk to my sponsor, and I was so happy that this had happened. And then she would go into the hospital a lot. And finally she went to the hospital one time. She had this uh, seizure. We went down to see her, and I'm talking to the doctor. And uh, the doctor, this is in 2000, and the doctor says, uh, she's, she won't be well, I don't think she's going to make it out of the hospital. I mean, she's really in bad shape. I mean, my daughter's tough. I mean, she's, this is, she's been doing this all the time, and this can't be. And she, no, really, you, what you don't understand, Mr. Lamb, is she's 19 years old, but interior-wise, she's got the body of a 90- or 100-year-old person because she's on all this anti-seizure medication, all this other medication, and her kidneys and liver, they just can't take it anymore. You know, her system is just shutting down. And this happens with kids and so I get quiet because I got this active 11-step process and I'm having a conversation with God and normally they're pretty good conversations, but not this morning. This morning it's going like this. How could you do this to me? You know, I know I was a bad dad, but I'm a good dad now. I've been, you know, I'm a good dad. How could you take my daughter from me? Uh, I, I talked to Michael and one of the friends that, that, that Doug talked about, Scott, helped me I did do more inventory. I had to realize I was being selfish and self-centered. I mean, my daughter... She couldn't talk, but she could convey her thoughts with her eyes. And when I got quiet and I held her and she looked at me, I knew she was, she was okay. She was ready to go. She was tired. I mean, the reality of the situation was my job was to be her father in this world and the next, and to help her. And because Alcoholics Anonymous, I was, I was there for her. You know, when her light left the room, I was there for her. I was her father, and I loved her. And what I've come to believe is this, and this is just my personal experience. I don't believe that we're just a bag of bones covered with flesh, with a heartbeat and a mind. There's something else about it. It's an essence. The, the religious call it the golden cord, the silver thread. My friend Scott talked about it. You know, he said, there's something that binds us, that binds me to you and you to me. It's an essence. It's a being. And it's transmitted when we rub up against each other. And what happens is we keep that and we pass it on. And what my daughter gave to me was a sense of love that I never had before. And I got to it through Alcoholics Anonymous and making amends. And I thought, well, that's nice. Won't go any further.
one of the guys that I sponsor is a name. His name is Stephen. And uh, he's got a son. His son is Evan. Evan has cerebral palsy with a seizure disorder. And he resented his son in much the same way as I resented. And we worked these spiritual exercises we call the steps. And a father was restored to his son and a son to a father. And I've seen him. And he loves his son. And he's together. And that's Alcoholics Anonymous. And that's what we do here, the seemingly impossible. This process, I mean, I can't, my job is not to stand here and say, go forth and sponsor. But for me, for this alcoholic, I want you to understand that a lot of this, I, I got a lot of relief in the steps, but it didn't become real until I started sponsoring, until I tried to convey to another man what my experience was, and through that experience, I got belief. I mean, we talk about faith and belief in Alcoholics Anonymous. Faith requires action. Belief doesn't. Belief is the result of action. I got up this morning, I flipped the switch, I believed it would go on because I'd flipped it a couple times and it went on. It might be off, might not work, the light bulb may not work, but I believe it based on my prior experience. Here with faith, you have to take action. You have to take action with these steps without knowing what the result will be. And when I got here, I was absolutely convinced it wouldn't work for me. And Michael told me, he said, that's fine. You can demand proof. You can expect miracles. All you've got to do is do the work, and the work will do you. And that's my experience. You know, I work with a lot of guys, and, and I like to look at it like it's a recipe. You know, the, the, the steps are a program of recovery but they're designed to be followed in order. It's like a recipe. It's like if, uh, if I say to you, go bake a cake. So you go to the store, you get the cake box, you gotta buy some eggs, you got some water, maybe some milk, you gotta whip it up, you gotta heat the oven. You gotta follow directions in order. Now, if the person that I sponsor does this, and he goes through all the steps, all the 12 steps, and then he says, well, I'm having a problem with this God thing. And I go over and I look and I say, well, what's that? He says, well, that's a cake. Now, it doesn't look like a cake. It does have an appearance of being a pastry, but it's lopped over to one side. It's just, it's bizarre looking. It smells terrible. Did you follow instructions? He says, yeah, I did. All the instructions. Well, I don't really like eggs. Okay. You're not going to get a cake. You know, I run into guys all the time saying, you know, I do, I do everything. I just don't. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't pray and meditate. Okay. You don't have to. But you're not working the steps. Don't tell me it doesn't work if you don't do it all. If you do it all and it doesn't work, then we'll have a conversation. And I've got to tell you, I've never had anybody do it all where it doesn't work. Ever. Ever. So one of the things that I want to talk about is, I, I, had, a, I had a huge resentment against my wife. And it seems kind of ridiculous now, but to me at the time. And it goes like this. I've spent a lot of time and effort getting sober. I've done a lot of work. I'm a man of God. You know, I, I pray and meditate. I've led people through the light. You know? I've really done a lot of work. And she apparently does not appreciate all the hard work I've done for us. She really doesn't. It's shocking. And, and how this manifests itself in my relationship is she takes the trash and recycling and she puts them out on the stoop on the side for me to get in the morning. Because apparently that's all I mean to her is a trash and recycling guy. I'm not really a caring, loving husband that's been brought back into the household in full as a loving partner. I'm just really the trash and recycling guy. Now, I can intuit this 
all by myself. And what happens is I pick up the trash recycling, I take it out to the trash recycling, I dump it, I'm just, I'm pissed. I'm muttering to myself, I'm just out of my mind. So I'm going to teach her, I don't talk to her for like three weeks. She's relieved that I'm not bothering her. Now the Aladons will understand this, because we're playing totally different games. It's like checkers and chess, checkers and chess. She's like, whoo, that guy's not bothering me. I'm like, I'm, I'm teaching that bitch, you know. And it's crazy. Finally, I get to the point where I'm writing inventory. And I'm writing inventory about it. And I'm talking to Michael. And he's like, well, have you, have you talked to her about it? Oh, no. Oh, no. I know my wife. Well, are you sure? Yeah, I know. I know what she's thinking. Oh, really? You know? Oh, yeah, I can tell what she's thinking. Well, is it possible she's wrong? Yeah, it's possible. Um, but I'm, I'm, no. I know. I know this is what she thinks of me. All right, what are you going to do about it? So I'm praying and meditating. Because I need an answer. This is killing me. It sounds stupid, but it's killing me. I mean, trash and recycling is killing me. So I'm praying and meditating. I'm writing inventory. And, and, and if you knew, it comes pretty quick. Maybe eight, nine months. It's not bad. And uh, what happens is I get patience, tolerance, love, and understanding. That's the answer. I've got to be patient, tolerant, love, and understanding. So I, I pray for this. And now I'm taking out the trash recycling. I'm patient, tolerant, loving, and understanding. I'm, it's okay. I'm a man of God. Now, sometimes I'll put it in there and I'll twitch a little bit, but it doesn't last. I'm good. I'm working with guys. Everything's fine. About three years ago, we get a dog, Zoe, golden retriever. Lovely dog. She poops. Dogs crap. That's what they do. In the morning, I take her for a walk. She craps, put it in the bag, put it in the trash. I go to a meeting at night. Dog craps. My wife puts it in the bag, takes it, puts it on the stoop next to the trash and recycling. Now, I've worked through the trash and recycling, but now we've got the poop. More inventory. Again, Michael says, if he, no, I haven't talked to her. I, mean, I, got, I got this, Michael. I got it. All right. This only takes a few weeks, and now, a few weeks, I'm okay. Trash recycling and poop, no problem. Trash recycling, I got it. I got it, no problem. Do this for a few years. A little over a year ago, I went out the front door instead of the side door. I didn't get the trash recycling and poop. Get to my office, I realize I didn't get the trash recycling and poop. I'm like, oh man, I gotta make amends for this. I go back, it's Monday night. I, my, my Monday night men's tag is that night, so I'm getting ready to go to the meeting, we're having dinner. My wife and daughter are there, and the dog is there, and I'm talking to my wife, and I say, hey Lynn, you know, I want to apologize, I didn't get the trash recycling and poop this morning. She's like, huh? You know, the trash recycling and poop, it's my job. It's what I've been doing it, you know, it's my job, and I didn't get it this morning. She goes, what? So now I've learned to pause when agitated, but I am out of my mind. Because I'm thinking, what, 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 do, you, what, what do you not understand? I've been doing this for over a decade. Trash, recycling, and poop. It's my job. I didn't get it. What don't you understand? But I didn't say that. I said, you know, baby, the trash, recycling, and poop, I know it's my job. I've been doing it for a while. And I, I went out the front door and said, side door, I forgot. She goes, I do not know what you're talking about. You know we have possums and raccoons and skunks. I don't put that out there for you. I just, I don't like to go out there at night. I figure I'll get it in the morning or maybe the kid or you, but I don't set that out there specifically for you. <laughs> now, I'm not saying anything, but I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, I've written inventory for over a decade on this. I mean, there are small forests that have lost their lives so I can write inventory. I've prayed, I've meditated, I'm a man of God. I've worked through this, and now you're telling me that it has no basis in fact. None. So I looked there and said, love you, babe. Got to go. Because I, I, I can't even handle that, you know. I go to the meeting, and I, I'm, I'm talking to my sponsor. I'm out of my mind. I'm he is laughing his butt off. 
Because apparently, even after some time, we are sent to entertain our sponsors. It's a required thing. I don't understand it. And he's laughing. He's calling people. He's saying, hey, look what Lamb did, you know? And he says, well, I got good news and bad news. Oh, God. All right. What's the bad news? It never ends. It never ends. I'm like, well, what's, what's the good news, Michael? He says, well, the good news is there's always something to do. And there's always somebody in Alcoholics Anonymous. And if you're new, you can find that someone tonight. Thanks for having me here.